Project MK Ultra, the CIA's 1950s and 1960s mind control program. Did the CIA really give college volunteers, prisoners, psychiatric patients, random people on the street, and each other high doses of LSD? Yeah. Did they introduce LSD and magic mushrooms into American culture? Yeah, they did. Did they research hypnosis in an attempt to create an assassin who would kill when given a subliminal command? Mm-hmm. Did they fund research into remote viewing, try to train people into spying on their enemies with their minds? Mm, yeah, yeah, they really did. I know it sounds crazy. It really does. So why did they do it? Find out in this conspiracy theorist episode of Time Suck based on a conspiracy that actually is true with the declassified government documents to prove it. It's time for a special bonus Friday edition, mind control edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Hey, Time Suckers, welcome to a special 800 iTunes review bonus edition of The Suck. Today's bonus edition is brought to us, brought to you, by the fantastically dark and entertaining podcast, uh, Small Town Murder. Yes, the same duo that brings you crime and sports also produces Small Town Murder every Thursday. True crime enthusiasts, comedians, James Petragallo, Jimmy Wisman, cover small towns with very creepy and disturbing pasts. They preface a story with the brief history of a small town somewhere in the world, how it was established, local economy, breakdown of citizen makeup, income, and strange local fun facts. My favorite is when they do southern small towns. They're especially weird to me. Uh, and there seems to be a lot of crime in those towns. They, uh, they then introduce a story about a murder that shattered the lives and changed the town forever. Some are dark, uncomfortable, and that's why James and Jimmy approach it with some humor to make it not just, you know, uh, uh, dark and horrifying, but also fun and a little more digestible. Uh, James straps on a, a cave spelunking helmet as he mines for gold, combing police reports, news files, public records uh, to get the full story, but the goal is not to denigrate victims or their families. The jokes come from terrible small town traditions, quotes, bumbling police forces, or just brazen police interrogation tactics. The stories are riveting. The facts are all true, but they won't bog you down with too much that doesn't pertain to the story. They will shut up and give you murder. Small Town Murder. That's, that's, uh, I love these guys. Subscribe to Small Town Murder on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, everywhere podcasts are available. And, and again, man, this is a, this is a great podcast. And if, if you like uh, the crime and sports, you'll love this. And if you don't listen to crime and sports, like if you're really, really not into sports, you just don't want to hear anything about it, uh, then this is the one to start with. It's just a great, I, I like these guys because they approach it the same way I do. They just, you know, heavy on the research and, uh, you know, add humor to make the story move. And so you learn a lot in a very entertaining way. And I've, I've noticed it's hard to find podcasts to do that, in my opinion. There's a lot of uh, info-heavy podcasts out there, very light on humor. They bore the shit out of me. And then there's a lot of, you know, ones that are very funny, I think, but uh, they don't give me the facts that I want. And I feel like these guys just, you know, walk the line very well. So check it out, Small Town Murder. And, uh, and yeah, 800 reviews, man. 800 reviews and counting. Thank you guys so much. Uh, I, I know some of you guys wonder, like, why do the reviews need to be on iTunes? Well, it's, it's just because over 80% of podcast listeners, according to studies, use iTunes to listen to their podcasts. So it's just the best way to spread the suck to new listeners. Help me get some new sponsors so I can keep this podcast going and have the podcast, you know, just stand out on iTunes. I uh, still can't believe we made it up to number 10 a while back. That was fantastic. Because I really, it's kind of like Yelp, you know, like when I'm in a new town looking for a place to eat and I don't, and I don't have a local I trust to tell me where to go or, you know, especially something like walking distance to the hotel I have to be at, I just, you know, I go to Yelp. And generally, when a restaurant has a lot of positive Yelp reviews, it ends up providing a pretty solid meal. No different with podcasts. When someone's looking for a new podcast, they tend to uh, look at the reviews. And when there's a lot of good reviews, they give it a shot. 
And so, you know, you're, when you spread this up to friends and coworkers or post about it on social media and, and you rate it on iTunes, it also moves the podcast up the charts where it's easier to be noticed. And the higher it does on the chart, you know, the more likely it is for just a new listener to find it. And with more listeners, the show has a chance to make, you know, a little more money. I can more realistically entertain the possibility of having time stuff be my main job right along there with stand-up instead of a, uh, a side project. So, and it's moving in that direction. God, I'm, and I'm really hopeful. I, I love doing this. I really, really love doing this. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, if you've shared Time Suck or if you've reviewed it, it helps so much. And if you haven't, please, please, please take a few seconds to do so. It really helps more than I think most people understand. Um, my favorite recent review, by the way, just came from an iTunes user. It wasn't me with the subject line of cannot recommend this podcast enough saying, what's up, mother suckers? This podcast is amazing for getting through the daily cubicle grind. The Suck Lord Master Commons twists and weaves a fantastic presentation of topics that are often overlooked while showing the northern Idaho handle of the English language. This podcast does not disappoint. I love northern Idaho handle of the English language. Thank God you guys care more about content than about my hillbilly backwards pronunciation abilities. Because I'm not going to be winning any excellence in broadcast presentation awards anytime ever. I'll never escape my North Idaho upbringing. Uh, I swear, I swear, it's like, it's like you know, it's like an, it's an accent of sorts. And when you get like it hardwired in your brain, yeah, you can like look at a word and you know that you're not saying it right, but it's like your mouth doesn't want to say it the way that you know uh, somebody on NBC Nightly News would say it. So, so uh, I appreciate you guys putting up with that and, jo- and enjoying it. Also, thanks for getting those uh, new little Time Suck stickers, continuing to purchase the Don't Wake the Bear album, Daddy Bear and Three Rabbits Meet the Real World, very adult kids book at the Time Suck store, and all those unicorn scrotum, chinchilla labia, koala anus, first, second, third generation tees at the timesuckpodcast.com store. And, uh, you know, and a lot of you guys have been using that Amazon button to do your shopping, helping out the, helping out the suck. And directly helping the suck with some PayPal donations uh, here and there. I really, really uh, appreciate it so much, you guys, for real. And now, uh, as of today, fourth generation tea is in the store. It's a charcoal Bella tri-blend with the word time suck and the new logos. New font written across the chest, royal blue. Tight little white line underneath, all classy looking, leading to a sneaky little website reference. And then a little monochromatic white face from the logo on the left sleeve. Way more subdued than the previous designs because I recognize that while I may love a giant robotic dog with fucking Michael motherfucking McDonald. <laughs> Riding him, or some crazy, you know, uh, space lizard shit uh, portrayed across my chest. Some smooth time suckers want something a little more subtle, a little more classy, you know? Uh, and this is it. This is a slick looking shirt, and it's just as soft as previous generations. Uh, for this design, I decided to go with 311% pure domestic bald eagle feathers. Specifically, I only used the little tiny white feathers around the bald eagle's head because those are the softest feathers and the most premium. So, good news. Uh, so soft and patriotic, it's going to bring a tear to your eye every time you wear it. And it's going to make you salute a flag you don't even see. Bad news. Takes about 25, 25 bald eagles to make a single shirt. You know, it's 25 to 30. Uh, but so, you know, whatever. No increase in costs, you know, uh, to you though, because I, I do illegally poach every single uh, bald eagle used for the shirts. That's keep me, keep me up late at nights. I've been shooting so many fucking eagles. And I have to really be careful not to shoot them in the head. Because uh, then, you know, total loss. And just like with the other shirts, free, free sticker pack with each purchase. Uh, so fuck yeah. Hail, hail Nimrod. Check them out at timesuckpodcast.com at the shop. And, and come see me live this weekend at the Irvine Improv. Use the promo code D-I-N-S-D-A-N. Dan's Dan. I don't know where they come up with that, but that's what it is. To get five, to get $5 tickets. It's night 7.30 show. That's Friday. And then tomorrow's Saturday shows. Also be the Hollywood Improv in the lab Thursday, October 5th. The first ever live recording of the Time Suck Podcast. Part of the LA Podcast Festival. Show starts at 7.30. Tickets, 15 bucks. Support that if you can. Ticket link in the episode description. 
Also be doing stand-up that weekend at the Improv Saturday night, October 7th in the main room, 8 p.m. Make a weekend out of it. More dates in Omaha, Portland, Columbus uh, coming up. Uh, and you can link to those at timesuckpodcast.com. And while you're doing stuff, follow the suck on social media. It pleases Nimrod at, at timesuckpodcast on all those fucking things. And finally, thanks to Chad, Jake at JAstronaut on Twitter, Cree Lucas, Jeff Pe- uh, Patik, Ben Sestak, and Austin Jones for requesting this episode. And to everyone who voted for MK Ultra to be the next bonus suck on Instagram. Now let's suck the shit out of CIA and stay tuned after we're done for those time sucker updates that are now at the end of the episode. All right, the main guide I used to uh, to research this episode because I, I wanted to be extra selective with this one because there's a lot of weird shit. If you if you Googled MK Ultra, I'd say about ninety percent of it is just fucking complete bananas. Uh, the best book uh, I found, and I decided to go be going with a, a book as the primary source more and more lately. I really like it. Uh, I found the, the Search for the Manchurian Candidate. It's published by former State Department officer John Marks in 1979 using the Freedom of Information Act. John was able to access 16,000 pages of CIA documents that avoided the paper shredder for reasons lost to history. Two Senate committees looked into Project Ultra and its CIA project predecessors, and Marks tracked down everyone basically related to the documents he could find. Uh, you know, some people, it was, it was impossible because the names were all scratched out, but a lot of interviews. He did all that in the late 1970s when it was a little fresher in people's minds. The book has over 15 pages of footnotes, won the Best Book of the Year Award for Investigative Journalism. The New York Magazine called it the CIA Exposé to end all CIA exposés. And I only add all this to point out that, uh, you know, I just want to make sure you know that with this kind of delicate topic, I'm not basing my research on, you know, some articles in the the Weekly World News. I'm not reading about MKUltra next to an article on fucking Bat Boy was just found again or about how an alien Bible has been found, and it turns out that UFOs worship Oprah Winfrey. Those are real headlines, by the way. Uh, Every time I look up info from the book, uh, it was corroborated by actual unsealed government files or other academic sources, so I feel real good about it. There was nothing that that just didn't, you know, line up with other stuff I found on the web. So Project MKUltra and its precursors, Project Artichoke and Project Bluebird, are very real. I know this is kind of a conspiracy uh, theory type episode, but th- there's no doubt about this. There, they, there are the documents. These are real things. The CIA truly did spend a large amount of tax dollars on trying to figure out how to control people's minds, uh, how to wipe people's memories, uh, you know, and similarly uh, other insane sounding quests. And and they crossed a lot of ethical and legal boundaries while doing so. And whenever I look into a conspiracy theory, I also look into the I look into the why now. I try and look into that first. You know, it's got to pass that test before I look any further. Like if there's no motive, it's like the flat earth thing. It's like the flat earth thing I've joked about so many times with the NASA guards guarding the ice wall to keep the fucking uh, NASA shenanigans alive, right? That it's it's all a big conspiracy and it's all money funneled to the Illuminati, even though it would cost way more to guard the wall. (laughs) It would be be much cheaper for them just to like let the ruse die and stop guarding the wall. Like, like, like that, that there's no motive there. It doesn't make any sense because there's no, there's not enough money in it. Like NASA doesn't receive enough money to compensate for having to guard the perimeter of the earth to keep people from finding out that NASA is a lie. Like it's just, it's such nonsense or like the lizard Illuminati. It's like, it's shit, get the fuck out of here. It's just like, there's what the, the lizards are doing this. Why? And we just never see what, what? it's just, it's just nonsense. This one makes sense. There was a good motive. And, and here's the very strong motive to fund and carry out MK Ultra. It's the Cold War. The CIA itself was founded, as you learned in the JFK episode, uh, September 18th, 
1947. The United States had just finished up with World War II two years earlier, and President Truman, who had authorized the use of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he'd still be in office for many years. The Cold War was just getting to, you know, starting to ramp up. Uh, everything I read about, uh, you know, that happened during this era paints a picture of U.S. obsession with communism, and that's where you know Ultra MK Ultra came out of this uh, came out of this you know period in history. The Russians and Americans had worked together to defeat Hitler, but they had very different ideas of how things should look in the post World War II world. You know, Russia uh, and and you know the U.S. were not. Uh, you know, good buds uh, before World War II because of their ideologies being so opposed with communism and, and uh, democracy. But then they had to join forces, you know, to uh, to get Hitler fucking out of power. And, and you know, while doing so, Stalin and, uh, and his, you know, his army had pushed west into Germany from the east. And when the war was over, you know, he was kind of already in most of Eastern Europe. He's already occupying it. And the Soviets had lost roughly 20 million people in the war, uh, military and civilian losses combined, and they wanted to secure their borders. And doing that meant occupy, occupying, continuing to occupy most of Eastern Europe, just, just like America has bases around the world to kind of, you know, guard our interests. They want to do the same goddamn thing, you know, but that also, you know, when you do that, it also means spreading your ideology, you know, and Soviets wanted a communist world that they were the biggest piece of. Because that would mean a safer world for them, uh, one where they would have more power and control, right? They were just as ambitious as we were and are. Uh, however, a communist world that, you know, led by Russia poses a huge threat, obviously, to the U.S. and their allies, such as Britain. And it was the best interest of the U.S. to have a democratic world where they were essentially, you know, they were the, the biggest bosses in. And so the two countries, you know, at odds ideologically with each other, the two biggest powers in the world, head-to-head. That's how the Cold War War gets going. And then when China, the world's most populated nation, also falls under communist control in 1949, the U.S. gets real fucking antsy. You know, it's starting to really, really uh, worry that communism could spread to, you know, the rest of Asia. You know, we know that it also made it into Vietnam and Korea and uh, and other places, you know. And then if it's going to spread, you know, into more of Europe and then it's, you know, there's making little inroads in South America – and, uh, you know, like Cuba and those kind of places, you know, it's, 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 they're just worried that eventually communists are going to be knocking at our door and are going to be, you know, pushing their way into the United States. Now, which form of government is better for the common person, capitalism, uh, the capitalism of the U.S. or the communism of China and Soviet Russia? There is no objective answer to that. It's subjective. But in general, most people, uh, including myself, Michael motherfucking McDonald, you know, Bojangles, Nimrod, uh, think that, you know, democratic capitalism is much better than autocratic uh, communism. And for the purpose of today's episode, just know that the overwhelming majority of American people in the 50s were uh, terrified about communism. They're terrified of Russia. They're worried about the spread of what is viewed as a tyrannical and oppressive system of government full of citizens starving, being tortured, killed by government officials. No hope of ever being able to rise above their lowly economic station, you know, that they may have been born into. There's no, you know, in that system, no hope of having that American dream of a house, boat, vacations, college for the kids, comfy retirement. You know, and included in these people afraid of communism are our government officials themselves. And most of their fear, you know, was very real. Uh, you know, we'll look at communist Russia and communist China down the road and some other time sucks for sure. And if you've listened to the North Korea time suck episode, you're already familiar with how insanely oppressive and terrifying these regimes can be. So this fear is also exaggerated uh, during the, uh, the World War II by the U- United States uh, government's first major well-coordinated and funded venture into the intelligence game, you know, the espionage and propaganda game, the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which was founded in 1942. 
And for the duration of World War II, the OSS conducted multiple activities and missions, uh, collected intelligence by spying, performed acts of sabotage, espionage, waged propaganda war uh, domestically and abroad, organized and coordinated anti-Nazi resistance groups in Europe, provided you know military training for anti-Japanese guerrilla groups in Asia, created various spy gadgets and espionage weapons. And during World War II, the OSS is pumping out you know a lot of state-funded propaganda about the communists as well. In the late 40s and 50s, government loyalty boards actually investigated millions of federal employees, asking what books and magazines they read. Uh, not millions, what did I say? Uh, thousands. It wasn't millions of them. Well, but, you know, they investigated thousands and thousands of people. Uh, I took a little farther for a second. You know, but they were looking at, like, what unions and civic organizations they belonged to, whether they went to a church or not, you know? Hundreds of screenwriters, actors, this is, like, the whole uh, ramping up to McCarthyism. You know, directors are blacklisted because of their alleged political beliefs. Teachers, steelworkers, sailors, lawyers, social workers lost their jobs for similar reasons. More than 39 states required teachers and other public employees to take loyalty oaths. Meanwhile, some library books were being pulled. They were considered too leftist for the shelves. You know, banned volumes included stuff like Robin Hood, Henry David Thoreau's Civil Disobedience, John Steinbeck's The Crepes of Wrath. President Truman in March 1947 issued an executive order creating a federal loyalty security program, a greatly enlarged version of a program originally instituted in 1939. The program gave loyalty review boards the power to fire federal employees when reasonable grounds existed for belief that they were disloyal. Evidence of disloyalty included not only treasonous activities but sympathetic association with a long list of organizations deemed by the attorney general to be communist, fascist, or totalitarian. These organizations range from Abraham Lincoln Brigade to the National Negro Congress. In practice, people could lose their jobs for being on the wrong mailing list, owning uh, the wrong book, owning the wrong record, listening to the wrong music, associating with relatives or friends who are politically suspect. The accused almost never learned the source of the allegations against them, and the criteria for dismissal were expanded in 1951 and again in 1953. Tens of thousands of federal employees, including disproportionate numbers of civil rights activists and homosexuals, were fully investigated under the Loyalty Security Program, and some 2,700 lost their jobs between 1947 and 1956. Man, people fired for maybe having socialist-leaning views. This sounds a lot like, you know, the North Korean shit we just learned about a while back, you know? Being fucking monitored by the government, you know, for what, what, uh, where your loyalty lies. You know, and then obviously, you know, these people weren't sent to a labor camp like they were in North Korea, but they were fucking fired. And this is the atmosphere the CIA is born into. This is how worked up the country is about the Cold War and about communism. It's fucking bananas, Right? <laughs> So it's so scary to me always when under the notion of fighting for freedom, freedom ends up getting taken away. You know, like if America truly is a free country, you know, uh, which it is, you know, you should be allowed to openly be communist in America. You know, remind this this kind of uh, attitude in the in the in the early Cold War years reminds me of a few years after those first few years after 9/11, when if you weren't in favor of just carpet bombing the fuck out of the Middle East in some misguided notion of fighting terror terrorism, you were viewed by many uh, Americans as being un-American. Like every motherfucker in the most totalitarian of regimes is allowed to agree with the government. That's not being free. Agreeing with the government, not an indication of freedom. Going along with the majority, not an indication of freedom. Freedom is exercised through dissent. To question is to be patriotic. That's to be, you know, a fighter for freedom. To blindly, fiercely, unquestioningly follow your government wherever they lead you is not patriotic, actually. It's nationalistic. And while nationalism can be great during a time of war, it's also a good way to become less free overall. Just the fucking irony of it all. You know, just that we can't let the commies win. We won't be, uh, we won't be free anymore, okay? Don't you get it? You goddamn leftist sympathizer. Hey, hey what is that? What is it? What is that? What is that over there by the record player? What is, is that Belly Holiday's love for sale? What the fuck do you think you're doing listening to that trash? This is America. 
You can't listen to that liberal smut in the land of the free. I heard you watched a streetcar named Desire. Did you watch it? Holding hands with fucking Joseph Stalin, you, you pinko fuck? What do you think? What do you think? You can just have whatever ideas you want in your head? <laughs> what do you, you think you're in Russia? Well, get out of here. This is America. You're, you're fired. Good luck finding another job. Ah, McCarthyism, man. That's another thing that needs to get sucked someday. Okay, so then... After the war ends, thanks to Truman's, you know, uh, National Security Act of 1947, uh, the United States now has a national peacetime, federally funded, full-time intelligence agency, the CIA, for the first time in our history. We had, you know, intelligence, you know, kind of, you know, things going on during times of war, but never uh, during times of peace. And many of the OSSS's, ah, OSS's leaders and employees now have a new agency to work for and new work to do. And most of that work centers on stopping the spread of communism. Right? And at the CIA, shortly after World War II, there is this idea uh, uh, that existed uh, during the OSS, during the war, uh, this, this kind of notion that no idea is a bad idea. This is this really experimental, we're going to try everything to get ahead of the Soviets kind of philosophy. For example, uh, the OSS had looked into hypnosis as a way to get a hypnotized German target close to Hitler and then turn him into a killing machine with some kind of code word, you know, have him assassinate the Fuhrer. Uh, they did all kinds of OSS scientists had also developed a synthetic compound that looked and smelled like diarrhea and snuck it into Japanese occupied Chinese cities and distributed to Chinese children in little tubes during the war. Yeah, this is what they're working on. This is the kind of experimental atmosphere they're, they're existing in. Uh, yeah, cause you know, shitting one's pants, I guess was apparently especially shameful for Japanese soldiers and, and Chinese kids were encouraged to sneak up on Japanese soldiers on patrol and shoot a tube of this poop juice onto the back of their uniform. The product was called who me? I'm not, I'm not making this up. This was designed by the OSS, and it was designed to psychologically torment the Japanese, embarrass them, and lower their soldiers' morale. I'm totally serious. It's going to seem like I'm fucking with you constantly in this episode, and most of the time I'm not. I love it, man. I love that this was an idea that had to be pitched and approved by the government in some kind of meeting. Like at one point, some high-ranking officer was listening to an OSS official explain the, the who, me, project to him. You know, some general just like, so uh, just to make sure... I understand what you're saying. You've developed fake shit. Uh, well, yes, that's a you know crude, uh, simplistic way of describing it. But yes, we we we've developed a, a fake, uh, a, a synthetic fecal matter, uh, diarrhea to be precise. Uh huh. Fake diarrhea shit, and we're supposed to dispense this to the Chinese, some kind of poop tube, and then the kids are gonna shoot this fake poop and some Japanese butts, and what? exactly director is this supposed to accomplish um well uh th th they will look like they've uh, uh truly defecated uh, sir they'll look like they shit their pants uh yeah and then what and then what they just give up because they pooped themselves and war's over no uh, no no general but, uh, but we think if, if if they get laughed at and, and pointed at enough uh for people thinking that they have defecated themselves they will not continue to fight as hard uh-huh. All right, Director, part of me wants to grab you, drag you out of my office, and throw you off the goddamn roof with my bare hands for wasting my time with this cockamamie bullshit. But the other part of me thinks this is fucking hilarious. Oh, man, worst-case scenario is going to give our boys something in the field to, it's fun to talk about, and that, my friend, is good for morale. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, uh, green light on who, me? Unbelievable. Uh, OSS also made some pretty cool uh, secret weapons. Uh, one was an explosive powder called Aunt Jemima because it looked like Aunt Jemima pancake batter. And it was batter you could actually cook with. 
uh, Dr. George uh, Kistikowski, a Harvard chemist with an extremely difficult uh, <laughs> last name to pronounce, uh, he invented it. And when he presented it to military officers during the war, he actually made cookies out of it, ate them in front of the officers to show how, how uh, secretive this powder was. How insane is that, man? Attach a powerful detonator to Aunt Jemima, and it had the power of dynamite. It was used at least once during the war, during World War II, to successfully blow up a bridge in China. That is badass and terrifying, right? An edible, explosive compound. And like I said, after the war, the OSS gives birth to the CIA, and the experiments continue. So I'm just, uh, you know, trying to give some context for where, where the weird shit coming up uh, uh, came from. And in 1949, mind control becomes a prime concern for the Cold War-obsessed CIA researchers thanks to something that happened in Hungary. In 1949, the CIA becomes convinced that the Soviets are making great leaps in their uh, experiments to master mind control. Uh, during the, uh, they become convinced when they, when they witnessed the Hungarian trial of Cardinal Joseph Mainzenti in 1949 during World War II. Joseph was imprisoned by the pro-Nazi Aero Cross Party. After the war, he opposed communism and communist persecution in his country. As a result, he was tortured and given a life sentence in 1949, kind of a show trial, shortly after the Soviets made Hungary a satellite nation. During the trial, he just had a glazed look in his eye. And he confessed to uh, numerous crimes of treason. Uh, investigations would soon reveal he didn't commit uh, the crimes he was accused of, couldn't have committed a lot of them. Uh, the CIA became convinced that the Russians had used some sort of hypnosis on him. Remember, they're already experimenting with that with OSS. Uh, they're already thinking that you can hypnotize somebody uh, to do something you know, like this. Because uh, Yeah. And so they become convinced that he was not acting of his own free will and that he was being basically mind-controlled. And this fascination with mind control and the possibility that it actually was possible starts to grow within the CIA, and a type of secret arms race begins. Just like uh, via the Manhattan Project, the U.S. was in a race to develop bigger and better nuclear weapons at a faster rate than the Soviets. And just like how the space race would soon take off later in the 1950s with a race to see you know, who could be first to land on the moon, there was also a secret race to see who could control a subject's mind the fastest, who could create the ultimate spy the quickest. You know, who could have their, their mind controlled to a degree to make it impossible for them to give up classified information while being interrogated? A spy who couldn't be flipped by the enemy, turned into a double agent, you know, control an entire army's minds. And you could create a troop of super soldiers whose morale would never falter, whose loyalty would never be tested. The practical applications are almost limitless. And if you think about it in a dark way, fucking terrifying. Master mind control and you could control the president to do your bidding, completely take over a nation. You know, when you really, really think about it, I mean... It could lead to a lot of scary places, you know, and even if the CIA never had the intention, you know, to to do that, to actually just, you know, rule the world with it, uh, we'll never know uh, because they destroyed most of those ultra documents. But it's easy to understand their motivation to accomplish it before the Russians did. You know, it's again, it, it's very comparable to the to nuclear uh, arms race. You know, the best thing for the planet is not to have nukes. But if some huge enemy of yours, you're convinced that they definitely are developing nukes, you are kind of foolish not to develop it yourselves. Because if they get, you know, crazy, sophisticated nuclear weapons and you don't have any, well, your fucking ass is gone, right? They are definitely going to take you over. So in a weird way, you know, uh, the, the, the most dangerous weapons that hum you know, humanity has ever created is also what keeps us at peace most of the time, you know, because there's this constant kind of checkmate or, or stalemate, excuse me, not, not checkmate would be bad, stalemate situation. And so, again, similar thing is going on with the mind control. We're convinced that they're, you know, making strides, which uh, uh, history would show turned out not to be true. But, you know, it was real in the minds of the CIA agents who were working to figure out how to do it uh, uh, on our end. So Project Bluebird, Bird, yeah, on April 20th, 19th, sorry, I'm a little mush mouth more than normal today. Sometimes a mouth just doesn't want to cooperate. April 20th, 1950, Project Bluebird is launched. 
It's, an, it's the uh, early precursor to MK Ultra, and initially, its main focus is hypnosis. Interrogation teams are formed of three people each, a psychiatrist, a lie detector test administrator, trained in hypnosis, and a lie detector machine technician. And the goal is somehow to, uh, to hypnotize subjects and then use the lie detector to make sure that the info that they are getting uh, from these people while be, you know, these people are hypnotized is accurate and honest. You know, because the CIA could never be sure that the info they're getting is reliable from ca- captured Soviet spies, for example, masked for this project, and they'd know for sure that their information was reliable and that, you know, getting all the information they needed. Uh, hypnosis, if it were to work like they hoped it was going to, would be way more effective than, say, like physical torture, which wasn't always reliable because sometimes people would just tell you anything just to make the torture stop. Uh, one former CIA official interviewed in the book said, if you have a blowtorch up someone's ass, uh, he'll give you tactical information. But you won't be able to keep getting continue, uh, reliable information from this subject, you know, because as soon as you let him go, he's, he's, he's going to be looking for revenge or at least just to never see you again, you know, because people don't like having their, having their buttholes uh, blowtorched. My God. Man, I bet you really would give up. <laughs> you really would give up some info if you thought you had a blowtorch, you know, uh, about to about to light up your ass. That is such a specific form of torture. You, like when I when I read that, it really disturbed me because that's not like a random example. Like you know that the guy who Marks talked to that said that either did blowtorch somebody's ass himself <laughs> or knew of people who did. My God, you know, like I'd I'd like to think I wouldn't rat out info and endanger lives by giving up sensitive information. But if you actually started blowtorching my butthole, I'm going to talk. Yeah, I am going to (laughs) talk. There's no way I'm not. I I like I think I might just tell you, you know, whatever you want to hear. Can you can you imagine having that done to you? Can you imagine being released after having that done to you? God, you'd walk a little funny for a long time after that, maybe for the rest of your life. And would anyone actually believe you if you if you told them why you were walking funny? It's so ridiculous. You know, just looking a little tender there, Robbie. You what, you holding something evil in there, buddy? Trying to make it to the toilet before you you let that demon loose? Uh, no, I don't. I don't. I don't have to go to the, the, the bathroom, Ryan. Ah, <laughs> rough night, huh? Things things get a little weird. Getting things get a little intense in bed. Uh, no, no, Brian. Th- things did not get a little. Uh, <clears throat> things did not get a little intense in bed. Well, why are you walking like you have a cactus in your ass, Robbie? <laughs> because some dude from the CIA took a blowtorch to my butthole, Brian. All right? They had me confused with some other Robbie who may or may not be a Russian spy. <laughs> and when I didn't tell them what they wanted to know, they blistered up my butthole with a goddamn blowtorch. Get the fuck out of here, Robbie. What do you do? Seriously, what, the, what is going on with you? What the hell happened to you? Uh, what happened is I told him everything, Brian. I told him I jerked off in the janitor's closet in junior high. I told him I beat a neighbor's cat to death and buried it in the backyard when I was 15. I told him that sometimes I get a boner when I ride the roller coaster and I don't know why. I told him everything. And those blowtorch-wielding bastards burped my fucking butthole anyway. Jesus, Robbie. I was, I was just asking questions, man. No, no need to go crazy with all the burnt butthole talk. That was, that was weird. <laughs> Okay, man. Take care. Oh, my God. Anyway, Project <laughs> Project Bluebird uh, also ran tests with chemicals on subjects, such as uh, North Korean POWs, to try and develop some kind of truth serum, you know, get people to give them the info that they wanted. They'd shoot up subjects with various chemicals, various chemical compounds, you know, make them drink potions, you know, chemists were coming up with, and basically just kind of see what would happen. Uh, you know, they'd also run chemical tests on subjects to try and induce amnesia. They wanted to wipe away memories of interrogation so the subject would, wouldn't even realize they'd been interrogated in the first place because how, you know, for espionage, how amazing would that be? If you could just fucking kidnap somebody, you know, basically torture the shit out of them, get a bunch of information out of them, then wipe their memory clean, drop them off at a fucking corner, and they have no idea what happened. You know, and so they would do stuff like inject, you know, subjects with uh, the depressant sodium amytal, the stimulant benzedrine, the stimulant uh, picrotoxin, uh, 
And uh, Project Bluebird also began experimenting with shock therapy in 1951. And remember, this is all government-sanctioned stuff. This is all taxpayer dollars. Uh, they talked with some psychiatrists who assured the researchers that, that, that electroshock therapy could be used to induce amnesia. And that while recovering from shocks, uh, patients would also sometimes, uh, you know, give up information that would be otherwise withheld from the doctors. The shock machine uh, also could be used uh, for straight-up uh, interrogation torture because it could, uh, you know, uh, cause excruciating pain to recipients, which, you know, they could, they could be uh, helpful in interrogations that way. Uh, here's something interesting uh, I learned uh, sucking a little further about electroshock therapy. Not only is it still legal in the U.S., it's still considered a useful therapeutic tool by many psychiatrists. Yeah, electroshock therapy pushes electric currents through patients' brain, intentionally giving them seizures for brief periods. Now, doctors don't know exactly how it works, but they believe it kind of resets the wonky parts of the brain. And, and again, it is legal in the U.S., uh, though according to BusinessInsider.com, an article I read there, it's illegal to give it to patients younger than 16 in Texas and Colorado, which implies that it's totally legal to shock the brains of kids younger than 16 in the rest of the goddamn country. Uh, in some cases, with the permission of courts, doctors can force very sick patients to get electroshock therapy. Uh, one of the more serious side effects of it is memory loss, and it was discovered by accident, like many types of psychotherapy. Uh, physicians began using the treatment in the 1930s after they noticed patients with severe mental illness suddenly get better after they had seizures. In the next couple of decades, uh, electroshock therapy uh, got a, a hideous reputation. The bad rap wasn't completely unwarranted since doctors used to use such high doses of electricity they would actually like break people's bones because uh, they weren't using muscle relaxers and anesthesia with it. Well, with Project Bluebird, researchers weren't interested in treating depression or any other form of mental illness with the shocks. They were just interested in inducing amnesia. And, uh, yeah, and it, and it does work, you know, turns out if you shock someone to a, an, an inhumane amount of times, they, they forget basically fucking everything. Uh, lobotomies were looked into in 1952. Project Bluebird, uh, began to dick around with neurosurgical techniques, according to classified documents, most likely meaning lobotomies. Uh, remember Dr. Icepick McBrain Stabber from the Insane, Insane Asylums episode? Well, him and old Dr. Shocky Shockerton, uh, were probably on the payroll of Project Bluebird. And uh, while no one is legally uh, slamming an ice pick into someone's frontal lobe via the orbital socket and mangling their noodle that way today, uh, even though lobotomies were outlawed in Russia in 1953 based on the grounds of, as one Soviet doctor put it, turning an insane person into an idiot, they are still legal in the U.S. I didn't know that either. They're now referred to as psychosurgery or cingulotomy. Uh, the procedure is performed uh, as a last resort when treating mental illness in the U.S. The part of the brain called the cingulate cortex is where illnesses like obsessive-compulsive disorder, schizophrenia, Alzheimer's, attention deficit disorder, and chronic pain can originate. A stereotactic cingulotomy is a procedure like the lobotomy, targets a very small portion of brain matter. In the case of a cingulotomy, the targeted matter is the cingulate cortex. Like a lobotomy, the procedure involves cutting the patient's head open, but instead of scooping out brain matter, doctors you know, use more advanced technologies to sever connections in the brain that cause the illnesses. Now, while this new technique sounds less barbaric than an ice pick in the eye socket, I do wonder how we're going to look back at it 50 years from now. Still just fucking snipping shit in the brain. Uh, and again, uh, bluebird researchers uh, don't care about treating mental illness with neurosurgical techniques. They just wanted to fucking wipe people's memories, and lobotomies could do that. Unfortunately, they, they also uh, tended to wipe out people's entire personalities. And the researchers uh, back on the uh, uh, on the uh, were willing, excuse me, to shock or operate on the brains of subjects far more than was normal at the time. And what was normal at the time uh, is looked at as barbaric now. And here's how the researchers rationalized it: CIA officials working during this era felt that again that they were among the first line of defense for America in its Cold War with communism. You know, as I stated earlier, 
the most populated nation in the world, China, had recently been taken over by a communist regime. 1949, Soviets had taken over most of Eastern Europe, thousands of troops and weaponry in East Berlin alone that could be inside of the UK in under 48 hours if mobilized. There was a feeling of constant great peril. And you had to do what you had to do to save America and the world. It's also heavily suspected that Soviets were not, you know, adhering to any kind of ethical standards in their research. And that could give them a huge military advantage. And so in the U.S., there became this strong ethos, you know, in these projects of the end justifies the means, you know, with these type of experiments. You know, and, you know, whenever that kind of philosophy is used, that means someone's getting super fucked over. <laughs> Project Bluebird uh, morphs into Project Artichoke in August of 1951, continuing experimentation regarding mind control and interrogation. Codenames, by the way, apparently just totally random. Don't hold any meeting. Because I was always like, what does fucking Ultra stand for? No one knows. What does, you know, Bluebird stand for? Maybe the guy who came up with it just thought bluebirds were were cool. Or maybe he had some weird algorithm where he just fucking picked words out of a book. Maybe he threw darts on the wall, you know? Maybe Project Artichoke. Maybe that guy hated artichokes. Maybe he ate one for lunch that day. Who knows? They uh, they had nothing to do with mind control. The CIA wanted to intensify their research in this new project. Uh, They struggled to find doctors with moral codes flexible enough to do the research expected them. Uh, and for subjects, they began to use individuals of dubious loyalty, suspected agents or planned sub, sub, uh, subjects, having known reasons for deception, etc. That's off a CIA document. Bluebird researchers weren't interested in just volunteer subjects anymore who knew they wouldn't be harmed because they felt that compromised their findings. In order to get real results, they felt they needed to start testing these mind control, you know, this mind control research on subjects who weren't aware that their minds were trying to be controlled. Sadly, I do see the logic there. You know, just like you can't truly care about the health and welfare of a lab rat when you're doing experiments that may harm or kill it. You also can't care about a human to get the best cold-blooded results there either. Obviously, this means this type of research, you know, uh, when done on humans, ends up crossing serious ethical boundaries. The first known group of people to be experimented on without their consent or knowledge uh, was a group of five men in Germany in 1952. And and I know those North Korean uh, POWs were mentioned earlier, but at least, uh, I guess, apparently they they knew, (laughs) you know, they knew some shit was happening to them on some level. You know, they could see the needle go in their arm. But now they start getting sneaky in 1952. They got three defectors, a known double agent and a suspected double agent. And then artichoke researchers, uh, you know, in their documents showed that they were prepared to dispose of these people's bodies if this uh, truth serum they were working on uh, at this point to control their minds ended up killing them. And members of Project Artichoke took these subjects out of confinement, took them out to secret locations in in the German countryside where they acted like they just wanted to talk to them about some stuff, check in with them. You know, just checking in, guys, just seeing what's what. Uh, you know, they're having there, they're eating, they're hanging out, they're laughing around. And then all of a sudden they gave uh, one of the subjects beer that the person didn't know was spiked with secondol, dexedrine, and the active ingredient in marijuana, which is tetrahydro, uh, uh, tetrahydrocannabinol. My God, these words. Uh, when they didn't, uh, uh, when this didn't work, they injected sodium uh, pentanol into his veins to knock him out and then brought him back with, to a semi-conscious state with benzedrine. And then they tried to <laughs> hypnotize him. So they're just fucking with this guy. They're spiking his drink, and they're like, ah, shit, that's not working. So then they, you know, then, then they just, you know, I guess he's kind of messed up, and he's high, and then they inject some stuff into his veins. It just knocks him completely out, and then, and then he's too unconscious, so then they bring him back, and then they try to hypnotize him. None of this shit works. But, it, but it, apparently, you know, they don't kill anybody this weekend. But then, a little bit later, the CIA catches wind of a new drug they have some really high hopes for, LSD, lysergic acid uh, diethylamide, and soon MK Ultra develops out of uh, artichoke. LSD, let's talk about that for a second. I didn't truly realize how, how recently this thing, had, uh, you know, this drug had been developed. It was discovered by accident. This is a really cool story uh, by a scientist named Albert Hoffman in Switzerland in 1943. In 1938, 
32-year-old Albert Hoffman wanted to synthesize a chemical compound that would stimulate the respiratory and circulatory systems. He had gone to work for Sandoz, a Swiss chemical company, in 1929 after graduation from the University of Zurich. Sandoz, uh, founded in 1886, had started out manufacturing dyes and then later saccharin. And then they had a, pharma, uh, a pharmaceutical department that was established in 1917 when Professor Arthur Stoll isolated an active substance called uh, ergotamine from ergot, uh, which is a fungus found in tainted rye that had been used as kind of a folk medicine for generations. In, in its natural form and in, and in you know, certain quantities, uh, ergot was a deadly poison, and it was a scourge, uh, a scourge responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people over many centuries, like in eight, uh, 857 AD in what is now Germany. Uh, contemporary accounting of events of that year recorded that a great plague of swollen blisters consumed the people by a loathsome rot so that their limbs were loosened and fell off before death. Well, historians now attribute this and similar events throughout history uh, to long-term exposure to infected grains, a condition known as St. Anthony's Fire, after the French uh, monastic order that devoted itself to caring for this plague's victims. St. Anthony's Fire can cause physical convulsions, psychosis, gangrene, nausea, mania, other horrible shit. In medieval Europe, uh, there were cases where entire villages would basically just go fucking insane. And, and, and also become horribly gangrenous from an outbreak of ergot poisoning. Uh, ergotism's toxic effects were eventually classified into two categories. There was gangrenous ergotism and convulsive ergotism. Uh, convulsive ergotism is characterized by nervous dysfunction where the victim is twisting and contorting their body in pain, trembling and shaking. Uh, more or less, you know, twisting of their necks, right neck, it's called, uh, seem to simulate uh, convulsions or fits. In some cases, it's accompanied by muscle spasms, confusion, delusions, hallucinations. Some people now believe that the advent of these gruesome symptoms without a known cause, especially the convulsive symptoms, which along with the hallucinations sometimes included mania and psychosis, or mania, uh, historically led to accusations of witchcraft and mass hysteria, such as the uh, during the infamous uh, Salem witch trials in 1692 and 1693. They might have actually been victims of ergot poisoning. Uh, studies have even correlated events like the Salem witch trials with years of rye scarcity, which kind of suggests an increased willingness to, cons to consume tainted rye. You know, if there's nothing else to eat. Uh, in small doses, the muscle and blood vessel constricting properties of ergot could actually be useful uh, to hasten childbirth, staunch bleeding after delivery, capabilities that had somehow been divined by alchemists and midwives and made uh, use of, you know, generations in that kind of folk medicine. So Arthur Stoll's accomplishment was to, to isolate the compounds in ergot that caused the constrictions. Ergotamine, ergotamine, excuse me, and ergo, uh, ergobasine. In its refined form, the compound could be precisely dosed to avoid a host of side effects from other unhelpful compounds in ergot, properties that made Sandoz a lot of money and launched the pharmaceutical research and development department that hired Hoffman 12 years later. Well, within a few years, researchers had determined the chemical structure of the various biologically active compounds in ergot, all of which shared a common nucleus. This chemical starting point was called lysergic acid, right? That's the L. That's the L in LSD. Hoffman uh, developed a synthetic process to, to build the ergot compounds from their co component chemicals. Using this method, he, he recreated ergot's active ingredients, and he starts combining lysergic acid with, uh, with various other organic molecules just to kind of see what would happen. You know, he created 24 of these lysergic acid combinations, and then he created the 25th, uh, reacting lysergic acid with uh, diethylamide, a derivative of ammonia, and this compound was abbreviated as LSD-25 for the purposes of lab testing. All right, so I guess, you know, when I said uh, lysergic earlier was the L, it's actually the L and the S. I guess they, 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 they threw in the S. 
They threw in the ass for the surgic. Albert had hoped for something that could stimulate circulation and respiration, but instead he reported that experimental animals given LSD became highly excited during testing, and LSD testing was discontinued. Yeah, I bet they were excited. They were probably seeing some insane shit. Uh, Hoffman went on with his uh, ergot research, but for some reason, as the years passed, he just couldn't stop thinking about the uh, apparently useless at first LSD-25. Maybe it was just the memory of those you know, oddly excited animals and their pens. Hoffman never said. He just had a, a, quote, feeling that this substance could possess properties other than those established in the first investigations. He would write that in his memoir later. So five years after initially experimenting with lysergic acid, diethylamide, uh, uh, you know, uh, it was tossed on the ash heap of pharmaceutical history uh, based on a hunch. Hoffman decided to synthesize it again. He would later tell his friends, I did not choose LSD. LSD found and called me, which is exactly the kind of thing acid makes you say. And then on April 16, 1943, in the middle of World War II, Hoffman was in the final stages of synthesis of just a few centigrams of the material, the part where the LSD crystallized into a salt, when he suddenly felt very strange, to the point he had to leave work and go home. When he returned to the lab the following Monday, he wrote a memo to his boss, Stoll, the guy we were talking about earlier, explaining what had happened. And what had happened was he had the world's first LSD trip. Check this shit out. This is from his memoir. He says, I was forced to interrupt my work in the, in the laboratory in the middle of the afternoon and proceed home being affected by a remarkable restlessness, combined with a slight dizziness. At home, I lay down and sank into a not-unpleasant, intoxicated-like condition characterized by an extremely stimulated imagination. In a dreamlike state, with eyes closed, I found the daylight to be unpleasantly glaring. I perceived an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes with intense kaleidoscopic play of colors. Well, when he recovered, Hoffman uh, said about trying to figure out what had so strongly affected him. In a 2006 New York Times interview, Hoffman would say that he first suspected the fumes of the chloroform-like solvent he'd been using for giving him these kind of symptoms. So now, so first off, he intentionally breathed those fumes, but nothing happened. So then he finally realized he must have somehow gotten like a trace amount of LSD in his system. Uh, and because of his lab protocol... The only point of access that, that this would have been able to happen with was like, you know, some kind of contact with the skin, possibly his fingertips. And the amount involved would have to be so, so tiny that, that he, he had a hard time believing it could produce a significant reaction. Now that his intuition about LSD was showing some kind of strange results, he decided he should take this experiment further and intentionally dose himself with LSD. So at 420 in the afternoon... On April 19th, without informing anyone at Sandoz except his uh, lab assistant, Hoffman dissolved 250 millionths of a gram of lysergic acid diethylamide uh, tartrate, the crystallized salt form of the compound, and drank it. He expected to do absolutely nothing. Uh, Hoffman dealt with LSD as it might be like a deadly poison, you know? So he, he began his death with like the tiniest of doses, a thousand times less than the active dose of any other physically active compound that he knew of at the time. He planned to increase the dosage by teeny tiny increments until he first got a little inkling of a reaction, expecting it to take, you know, many, many, many doses before that happened. But, but just 40 minutes after that small initial dose, he wrote the one and only entry in his lab journal uh, that day. 17 o'clock, beginning dizziness, feeling of anxiety, visual distortions, symptoms of paralysis, desire to laugh. And then I'm sure he's too fucked up to write, to write anymore. Years later, he would write in his memoir, uh, LSD, My Problem Child. That's a great title, by the way. Uh, I had to struggle to speak intelligibly. I bet he struggled. I've only taken LSD one time, and you can hear about it, actually, too. I told my story for the Comedy Central show uh, a couple years ago, This Is Not Happening, and you can actually watch the video on YouTube. And as crazy as my story uh, was, I was not exaggerating. A buddy of mine and I, we took nine tabs of acid to Vegas. Uh, I had never done it before. We split it uh, right down to tearing one tab in half, so we each took four and a half hits, and it fucking ripped a hole in my consciousness. I experienced powerful visual hallucinations. 
Uh, the pattern on the hotel carpet seemed to undulate, you know, warp and move. People's faces would not, st- you know, be still. Even when I'm sure they were still, they just kind of just kept distorting and shifting. They didn't seem to have the right proportions. Lights were extremely powerful and distorted. Uh, they would follow me as I looked away in these visual trails, you know. Uh, but far worse than the visual hallucinations was a sense of distorted reality, extreme paranoia. I was convinced for a while that I had been in a coma for many years and that no one uh, I knew and what I thought had been my real life were actually real. Everything was fake. My, my entire reality had been created by some kind of nefarious scientist trying to trick me into revealing secrets, so secret, even I didn't know what they were. How fucked up is that? <laughs> if that sounds insane, it's because I was insane. But it felt so real to me that night, and it lasted for hours. I started feeling like horrible things were right behind me, like, like blood was coming out of the walls, nightmarish things were all around. As time went on, the visual hallucinations intensified. I wanted to call somebody, but I, I couldn't even use a phone because it would seem to melt when I picked it up. I couldn't make out any of the buttons. I became convinced that the way I felt was the way I was always going to feel. It was horrible. For a good chunk of the night, I just laid on the bed and just waited for it to be over. Well, after Hoffman's second trip and, and the first intentional one, he asked his lab assistant to escort him home, which wasn't as easy as it probably should have been. Uh, because of wartime restriction and automobile use, both men were on bikes. <laughs> and on what must have been one hell of a bike ride, uh, Hoffman felt his condition take a threatening turn. He says, everything in my field of vision wavered and was distorted, as if seen in a curved mirror. Oh, I totally get that. I also had the sensation of being unable to move from the spot. Nevertheless, Oh, I understand that too, actually, because I kept thinking like my buddy would like start to drift away from me. And then sometimes it felt like I was moving, but not moving. Oh, so weird. Nevertheless, my assistant later told me that we had traveled very rapidly. Finally, we arrived at home safe and sound. And I was just barely capable of asking my companion to summon our family doctor and request milk from the neighbors. <laughs> See that I'd taken a poison and maybe like the milk would help calm it down or something. The effects were powerful, frightening, and unexpected. Uh, Hoffman had no idea how the experiments might play out in the next few hours and beyond because, you know, at least like when I went on my trip, there was at least part of my brain that knew what I had done to myself. He fucking had no idea for all he knew that this might be the way he was forever. Like, you know, he didn't know anybody else. Nobody else had done it. You know, this, this might be just how things were now. Oh, I can't imagine how terrifying that would be. And, uh, he thought, it, he thought it was going to kill him. He talked about how he felt again in his book. He said, uh, the dizziness and sensation of fainting became so strong at times that I could no longer hold myself erect and had to lie down on the sofa. Everything in the room spun around and the familiar objects and pieces of furniture assumed grotesque, threatening forms. They were in continuous motion, animated as if driven by an inner re- relentlessness. The lady next door, whom I scarcely recognized, brought me milk. <laughs> well, I'll focus on milk is in the course of the evening. I drank more than two liters. <laughs> <laughs> he must have looked like such an idiot. This is a dude just pounding milk. I'll just, oh, I'll feel better if I just pound milk. She was no longer Mrs. R, but rather a malevolent, insidious witch with a colored mask. Every exertion of my will, every attempt to put out an end to the de- disintegration of the outer world and the d- disillusion of my ego seemed to be a wasted effort. A demon had invaded me, had taken possession of my body, mind, soul. I was seized by the dreadful fear of going insane. I was taken to another world, another place, another time. My body seemed to be without sensation, lifeless, strange. Was I dying? Oh my God, do I understand all this. And by, <laughs> and by the way, if this like it sounds enticing to you, man, just be careful. I can't talk anybody out of doing hallucinations, but holy shit. If, if no one's going to talk you out of, of doing that, at least do it with somebody who's done it from the batch you're going to be doing it from before. I mean, totally serious. Try to just be practical about this and make sure that they're, they stay with you. Don't be by yourself and don't be by anything sharp. No knives, no weapons can be around you. You cannot have access to any of that, seriously. And do not be any place that you could jump off of and kill yourself accidentally. 
because you will think the craziest shit. I remember looking out the window at one point. If the window would have been able to open, there is a chance I'd be like, you know what? I think I can pull it off. I think I can glide down to the bottom. Ugh, powerful. Um, <laughs> well, a doctor showed up for Hoffman, detected nothing more alarming than dilated pupils. Blood pressure, respiration, pulse were all actually completely normal, even though inside he was going bananas. Uh, and the doctor didn't give him any medicine, and he just puts Hoffman to bed, and he leaves. And then Hoffman would write about how he came back down later, saying, The horror softened and gave way to a feeling of good fortune and gratitude. The more normal perceptions and thoughts returned, and I became more confident that the danger of insanity was conclusively past. Now, little by little, I began to enjoy the unprecedented colors and plays of shapes that persisted behind my closed eyes. Kaleidoscopic, fantastic images surged in on me. Again, totally relate. After the worst of my trip, my buddy and I were looking out over the Vegas skyline. We were, you know, way up on a, in our hotel room with this big window looking out of the strip. It was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen because the lights were just pulsing and, and trailing. And it was, yeah, it was amazing. And I was just so relieved that I made it back to sanity. <laughs> Uh, the next morning, uh, Hoffman uh, wrote, Everything glistened and sparkled in a fresh light. The world was as if newly created. All my senses vibrated in a condition of highest sensitivity, which persisted for the entire day. I'm that, how amazing is it that he, that he documented the first LSD trip? That's amazing to me. Uh, so it was clear that a remarkable discovery had been made. Uh, first, the drug had to be tested extensively in animals to determine any acutely toxic effects that Hoffman had been merely lucky to survive. Uh, animal tests would eventually provide some, some curious results. I love all this. Mice given LSD moved erratically and showed alterations in licking behavior. Started licking weird. Uh, cats' hair stood on end and they salivated. <laughs> Indications they were having hallucina hallucinations that were either threatening or enticing. So you understand that? Like they're, like they're by themselves on acid in a little cat cage and either like kind of like getting their back all hunched up and their hair is on end because they're seeing some crazy shit coming toward them that's threatening or they're licking like, oh, I want to eat that. I want to eat that big old, how did that big old fish just swim through the air? You know, just probably seeing the weirdest stuff. Uh, when researchers introduced mice into the cat's cages, instead of attacking them, sometimes the felines <laughs> would ignore the rodents' intrusion or sometimes appear frightened by them like they'd, like they'd grown huge. Uh, dosed chimpanzees did not show any obvious signs of being affected, but the normal chimps around them tend to become, uh, tend to become extremely upset. So Hoffman attributed that to the, the test animal's failure to maintain social norms, perceptible only to the chimps. So, you know, the other chimps knew that the, the LSD chimp was fucked up. Man, animals tripping on acid. Uh, it is messed up because they didn't know what was happening to them, but also hilarious to me. I just wish we could know for sure what they saw. Uh, Hoffman, Hoffman knew what he, what he had seen, saying, I was taken to another world, another place, another time. My body seemed to be without sensation, lifeless, strange. Oh, man, he tested on all kinds of stuff. He, uh, aquarium fish? <laughs> on acid uh they would swim oddly give it they give it to spiders and they would all the spiders would alter their web building patterns spiders uh how weird is that give spiders given acid at low doses the webs uh would sometimes become better proportioned and more exactly built than normal uh it's, it, but at higher doses like extremely high doses the webs were just completely erratic and poorly made <laughs> after a lot of testing uh hoffman determined that none of the animals in the test seemed to suffer acute harm at the active dose and that the lethal dose was like a hundred times higher than what was necessary for, you know, maximum kind of psychic effect. So there was a wide safety margin with this new, new drug. So now reassured that LSD wouldn't kill him or destroy his brain. Hoffman's curiosity about his own experience only intensified. And he decided to continue his LSD research informally saying that in the friendly and private company of two good friends of mine, you know, he just, he just kept, kept tripping. He did this. He later wrote in order to investigate the influence of the surroundings of the outer and inner conditions of the LSD experience. These experiments showed me the enormous impact of, to use modern terms, set and setting on the content and character of the experience. 
Uh, in some of my psychedelic experiences, I had a feeling of ecstatic love and unity with all creatures in the universe. He would, t- he would later tell uh, High Times in an interview. To have had such an experience of absolute beautitude, is that even a word, means an enrichment of our life. But he also learned something else. He said controlling uh, for set and setting had its limits. He says, in spite of a good mood at the beginning of a session, positive expectations, beautiful surroundings, and sympathetic company, I once fell into a terrible depression. And he said the unpredictability of the effects uh, is a major danger of LSD. Okay, so Hoffman and his coworkers would then publish a, a paper on LSD in 1947. And then in 1949, Otto Cotter, a Viennese uh, um, doctor who had read Hoffman's report and then studied it himself, gave a speech on LSD at, uh, as, as leading to potential treatment for schizophrenia in Boston in 1949. And soon thereafter, the members of Project Artichoke hear about LSD and think this incredibly powerful mind-altering substance, you know, something that uh, previously unknown, this has been the most powerfully mind-altering substance anyone had ever seen to this point, might unlock secrets to mind control. So 1953, future CIA director Richard Helms proposes to then-director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, that the CIA set up a program under Dr. Sid Gottlieb, a man with a PhD from Caltech who headed the CIA's chemical division within its technical services staff, TSS. He wanted Gottlieb to head a program based on, quote, the covert use of biological and chemical materials for use in future clandestine operations. On April 13, 1953, Director Doles approves the project, names names it MKUltra, and gives it an initial budget of $300,000. So in the early days of MKUltra, the six TSS members assigned to it spent a good deal of their time considering the possibilities of LSD. Mind-altering drugs already around, but again, nothing this powerful. It was several thousand uh, times more potent than a comparable amount of mescaline and a million times stronger, at least by weight, than hashish. Uh, They also did some math and figured out fun stuff like uh, one suitcase full of pure LSD could send every citizen of the United States on a trip. Uh, and they considered its use as a military weapon, you know, like like what if they put it in a city's water supply and sent an entire city off to another planet mentally? How fucking amazing would that be and effective? I mean, seriously, that, that is a, a one hell of a weapon. I mean, can you imagine if like, like the entire city of Chicago started going at one massive LSD trip and none of them <laughs> knew they had taken LSD? Like if the entire water supply was dosed. You know, only people who hadn't washed their hands or showered or drank any water other than bottled water or hadn't used water to cook with were unaffected. Ambulance drivers, firemen, surgeons, teachers, police officers, gang members, freight truck drivers, everyone just tripping balls. No one knowing why. Think of the YouTube videos that would create the chaos. Oh, that actually would work extremely effectively as a biological weapon, right? Sneak into an enemy's military uh, or behind enemy lines and spike the military's water supply with LSD. See See how well the army can fight back. If they're completely out of their minds, if, if they don't, you know, uh, know where the targets are, if they're seeing extra targets that aren't there, how are, they, how are they supposed to shoot their rifles? How are they supposed to fly their planes? You know, what if they become convinced that their targets are unkillable monsters, or demons, other nonsensical stuff? Well, rather than focus mainly on the on like wide-scale attack potentials, uh, the potential of LSD, uh, Ultra primarily focused on the research on the drug's effect on individuals. For example, you know, could they turn the allegiance of a Russian spy to their side by manipulating his mind while he was under the influence of LSD, you know? And, and, and while LSD was the primary mind-altering drug they were focused on, they also did look into, like, cocaine, nicotine, alcohol, heroin, basically every other drug for similar purposes. And, and they began to secretly funnel money through various legitimate grants and endowments to, uh, to start to have psychiatrists and uh, other academic researchers start administering drugs to volunteers in order to clinically study its effects. 
And at first, the volunteers knew what they were taking and what the potential you know, side effects would be. Uh, researchers also routinely, routinely uh, started to take the drugs themselves, you know, just to know what it would feel like. Uh, they convinced psychiatrists to work with this new drug. Psychiatrists who were interested in LSD for other reasons, uh, the drugs, you know, high mimic the effects of schizophrenia. Remember that uh, first presentation in the States in 1949. Uh, and psychiatrists thought that if they could find out how to sober somebody up, basically in the middle of a trip, how to get their mind to snap back, they'd discover a, a type of antidote for LSD, that, that same antidote might also cure schizophrenia. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I see the logic there, you know. Uh, ultra researchers also began to work with prison populations in the early 1950s, uh, giving the inmates their drug of choice, cocaine, heroin, whatever, to study its effects on them. Inmates would be rewarded with shorter sentences or given more drugs uh, as a reward. LSD was, uh, also offered, <laughs> uh, Dr. Harris Isbell during some of these early experiments once, uh, gave seven inmates in Lexington, Kentucky, LSD doses for 77 days in a row. That is absurd. 43 days into the experiment, he was amazed at the tolerance some of the subjects were beginning to develop, and he quadrupled their dosages. Clearly, that crosses some ethical boundaries. No one, no one should trip for two and a half months straight. I can't imagine what that did to those seven people long term. Uh, one early prison volunteer was actually the infamous gangster Whitey Bulger. Uh, you may know that name. Whitey Bulger is the uh, Boston gangster who was arrested in Santa Monica in 2011. The guy played by Johnny Depp in 2015's Black Mass. Well, Bulger was given LSD while in federal prison in Atlanta in exchange for a lighter sentence. And for 18 months, Bulger and other in inmates were tested, you know, uh, with uh, tons of drug use. Bulger described his experience in his notebook as horrible LSD experiences followed by thoughts of suicide and deep depression. He was so deeply and negatively affected by the project that Bulger compared the program's doctor to Joseph Mengel, uh, the Nazi doctor responsible for horrific human uh, experimentation conducted at concentration camps during World War II. Uh, Bulger's anxiety was compounded by his inability to ask for help or disclose what he was experiencing. He was afraid that telling anyone about his visual and auditory hallucinations would lead to a lifelong commitment in an insane asylum. How horrible is that, man? You know, so obviously they didn't tell him everything that was going to happen to them. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, they make these people feel like they're going insane. They're hearing things they're seeing things, and then they're afraid to talk about it. That's going to do some psychological damage. The effects of the LSD on Bulger, uh, were, were such that the mobster reflected on the irony of a situation in his notebook writing, I was in prison for committing a crime and feel they've committed a worse crime on me. He was also so enraged after learning of the program's intent and its effects it had on other inmates that he strongly considered tracking down Dr. Carl, Carl Pfeiffer, the pharmacologist who oversaw the program. Uh, and killing him later in life. Uh, Dr. Isbell uh, in that uh, Lexington prison also experimented with other hallucinogenic drugs and inmates that I'd never even heard of before. Stuff like uh, scopolamine, uh, rivia seeds from the morning glory plant, which apparently can produce a mild trip. They have a similar chemical composition to LSD. Uh, scopolamine, um, also known as hyacine, is used to treat nausea and motion sickness. In some cases, though, this derivative of a, a type of nightshade flower can also produce hallucinations. These dudes were looking at everything. Ultra researchers also worked with American pharmaceutical companies, you know, having them try to develop some new, uh, uh, you know, hallucinatory drugs. And then also they started manufacturing acid domestically rather than rely on a foreign distributor for it, rather than rely on that Swiss lab that created it. The CIA funded a synthetic development of LSD domestically, creating a stateside infrastructure for the drug. Uh, and ironically, the drug of choice for the counterculture revolution of the 1960s, you know, ended up being made by the man, the man they despised in the 1950s, right? How weird is that? All those hippies, you know, doing, doing LSD in the 60s? You know, questioning the government, all that questioning and all that LSD, well, not the questioning, but all the LSD drug use came out of a lot of CIA stuff in the 50s. Ah, LSD, man, brought to you by the CIA. So funny to me. 
Uh, and in addition to giving people, you know, like prisoners, uh, uh, the, the drug, early Ultra members also did it themselves. They were taking acid apparently pretty often in the early 1950s, taking it at work, at home, while traveling. Uh, one researcher recalls suddenly seeing rainbows shooting out from cracks in the sidewalks. He became obsessed with people's facial blemishes, finding them suddenly beautiful. Said that the trip changed him, and he suddenly found the world a more beautiful place than it was before. Uh, I love all this happening in the, in, in the America of the 1950s. These CIA agents, dudes who are probably, you know, wearing slacks, button-up shirts, ties, listening to Perry Como and Eddie Fisher on the radio, watching I Love Lucy, the Ed Sullivan show, the Jackie Gleason show at home, you know, shows where the wor- worst thing a character ever does is have one drink too many, you know? Uh, this, this is the buttoned-up baby boomer life of the early 1950s, and then these guys are tripping balls on acid at work. Uh, by late 1953, ultra-researchers decided they needed to start testing on people who didn't know they'd been given it because that's how they'd use it in the military, on unsuspecting targets. How fucking terrible is that again? What a terrible thing to do to somebody. On November 18, 1953, during a three-day work ret- retreat with members of the Army Chemical Corps Special Operations Division, SOD, ultra-researchers gave acid to people for the first time who truly had no idea what was going on. Uh, the SOD researchers were familiar with drugs. They'd specialized in stuff like developing new lethal toxins used to assassinate enemies in seconds, suicide pills, stuff that wouldn't show up in autopsies, stuff like that. They came up with poisons that mimic the effects of natural diseases to make deaths look accidental or natural, kind of like how anthrax poisoning can look like pneumonia. Uh, they also worked on creating new strains of diseases used to kill enemy populations and attacks with biological warfare, but that wouldn't prepare them for a drink spiked with LSD. During this retreat, Sid Gottlieb from Ultra right, the head of this new, this new uh, uh, project, spiked their alcohol with LSD. And one of the men whose uh, drinks was spiked was a guy named Dr. Frank Olson. And apparently, and you probably recognize that name if you're a big Ultra fan. And apparently, uh, Dr. Olson went fucking bananas. He, he ran out of the retreat, took, him, took these guys, the rest of the guys, hours to find him. When they finally <laughs> found him, he, he was way, he made it miles away. He was hiding by the side of the road, cowering in fear. Uh, it took a long time uh, for them to convince him to come back to the tree. He was super paranoid, thought everyone was out to get him. And of course he was, you know, he's out of his mind and he didn't know why. Uh, you know, when he left the retreat the next day, his wife noticed he was seriously depressed and paranoid. He had delusions of being persecuted that just kept intensifying, uh, intensified over the next few days to the point that coworkers had him flown to New York City to see a CIA psychiatrist and be given a mental health evaluation. He, he had suffered a complete nervous breakdown and agreed to, to have them take him to a sanitarium for some, you know, evaluations. Well, the night before he was to be taken for these evaluations on November 28, 1953, just 10 days after being given that LSD, you know, and, and not knowing he'd been given it, he threw himself through the 10th floor window of his Manhattan hotel. Apparently he just ran and just jumped into the window and then he died on impact, you know, 10 stories below. And the CIA rationalized his death as basically a coincidence while acknowledging, you know, the, the maybe LSD might have had a little something to do with it. Well, Frank's widow would later sue the CIA, and in 1976, President Gerald Ford would personally apologize uh, to this guy's family and award them $750,000 through Congress. So they, they definitely were responsible. The death of Frank Olson did not threaten to end MKUltra, uh, but it did change their choice in subjects. No more spiking people's drinks at work. They're not going to be giving it to other un- unwitting government officials now. Uh, instead, they get a little bit more evil. Uh, they just start to turn to an element of society where people can't fight back, you know? Junkies, prostitutes, small-time career criminals, chronically disenfranchised homeless people, you know? The disenfranchised, people powerless to seek revenge. Ah, oh, man. Exploitation of the powerless, man. The kind of shit that inspired Zach De La Roca into writing a ton of really good Rage Against the Machine songs years later. Well, uh, Ultra began setting up safe houses in New York City and later uh, uh, San Francisco on Telegraph Hill and in Marin County to experiment on random U.S. citizens. 
They recruited Federal Bureau of Narcotics agent uh, George White to gain access to the criminal underworld. Ultra agents would use these safe houses to talk to criminal informants. And it was at this, uh, uh, you know, these safe houses where they began slipping acid into informants' drinks and food. You know, and then see how much the information they'd give them after being under the influence of LSD. And I guess they had like, you know, two-way mirrors or, or I'm sorry, see-through mirrors set up. So that, you know, while one person's interrogating some guy who's out of his mind on LSD and doesn't know why, uh, there's a scientist behind a fucking see-through mirror taking some notes. It's all so weird. Uh, San Francisco's safe house was set up as a brothel. Agent White uh, would recruit uh, prostitutes to use this new safe brothel. And, uh, and again, there were uh, see-through mirrors are, are established here. They're just watching people have sex with the prostitutes, watching Johns getting their drinks spiked with acid, seeing what happened to them in these situations. You know, they also they also kind of uh, studied the prostitutes with an eye towards using them as CIA operatives. Like if a woman was willing to uh, sell her body for sex, what else would she be willing to do on behalf of the CIA to get information out of a target? So it wasn't just, you know, the ultra stuff. It was just they were just doing a lot of weird shit in the 50s, a lot of very sketchy stuff. Uh, also, by studying what guys were truly into the bedroom when they didn't think anyone was watching and they were with a prostitute who didn't know who they were or, you know, wouldn't tell their coworkers or family. Uh, they gained a lot of insight, I guess, into human behavior in general. Yeah, yeah I guess you would. Uh, the CIA would uh, later use Berlin prostitutes as operatives to try and get uh, info out of East Berlin communists. And then again, you know, there was the, all the LSD stuff. And, uh, and there's, you know, giving the LSD to the, to the Johns. And then after a while, they got a little bit bolder and they decided to uh, just kind of go to other, you know, hangouts. And like in San Francisco, for example, around Telegraph Hill, and just spike random people's drinks. People who weren't even criminals. Just some dude by himself drinking late at night. A couple other dudes start talking to him, think he's just cool guys, but they're not. They're not cool guys. They're ultra agents. Ultra agents who are slipping, you know, a Mickey in the form of acid into his drink and then just letting him wander off home, thinking he'd lost his mind for the rest of his life. Oh, how messed that up. I mean, how messed up is that? And then, you know, you head out for a night in the town with some friends. Suddenly you're, you know, had too much to drink. You wander off by yourself. And now you're tripping on a drug. It makes you feel insane. A drug you don't even know exists yet. None of your friends or family have ever heard about it. You would question your mental health for the rest of your life. You know, how would that feel if you, you know, you feel like you have a totally sound mind for 30 years and then one night after two whiskey sours in the, maybe the Castro district or somewhere, you start seeing demons on the streets of San Francisco. You see blood pouring out of people's eyes and you know, you know, it's because the devil needs your soul and your soul alone to win the battle of the apocalypse or, you know, or some other nonsensical nightmare shit that can appear all too real when you've taken too much LSD. Well, not only did MK Ultra agents uh, give random people LSD, they also gave other hallucinogens to unsuspecting people, including one especially terrifying and powerful one developed by the military called Buzz, or uh, 3-quinuclindinyl benzylate. It was a powerful deliriant, acting as a competitive non-selective blocker at postsynaptic and post-junctional uh, muscarinic receptor sites in smooth muscle exocrine glands, and the brain, BZ decreases the effective concentration of acetylcholine uh, seen by receptors of these sites. Thus, BZ causes PNS effects that are, in general, are opposite those seen in nerve agent poisoning. Uh, central nervous system in effects include stupor, confusion, confabulation, uh, with concrete and panoramic illusions and hallucinations, and with regression to primitive and voluntary behaviors, such as floxillation, it was invented by uh, another one of those Swiss pharmaceutical companies in 1951, man, for a neutral country. They're putting out a lot of, you know, horrible, non-neutral shit. And anyway, this, this nasty as hell sounding buzz allegedly causes trips lasting a week or more and regularly induces violent behavior. So it's like, you know, far more evil than acid. 
John Marks, author of the uh, this book I've been referring to, this book, the, uh, the Search for the Manchurian Candidate, talks about interviewing a Latin American professor who was outspokenly against the CIA around this time and, their, and, and against their involvement in Latin America in the 50s. And this guy said that one day when he was working alone in his office, some strange woman runs in and sticks him with a needle that he thinks contained buzz or something similar. He says he almost immediately became irrational. He started breaking shit around the office, started throwing stuff at colleagues. An ambulance, you know, comes. They, they have to restrain him, take him to a hospital where it takes more than a week for him to stop hallucinating and become rational again. Said it took him years to get his career back on track after that. Ah, oh, man, that is, again, though, what a weapon, man. You have some spy, not necessarily kill some foreign person, but can you imagine just giving that to some foreign leader and just make him completely batshit insane for a week or two? There's no way you can run a country in that, in that mindset. Mindset, excuse me. Uh, the CIA uh, was exploring all kinds of mind-altering drugs, anything they could get their hands on, uh, including magic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, they first encountered these mushrooms and uh, investigated them in Mexico in 1953 as Project Artichoke, as part of Project Artichoke, excuse me. Uh, the mushrooms had been known in parts of Mexico as far back as the Aztecs who used them in religious ceremonies. Aztec priests called these mushroom god flesh. Now, what an awesome name for a drug. Hey, man. You want to take a hit of this God flesh? You want to chew on some of this God flesh? Do you want to see God's mind? Do you want to be thrust into his mind's eye? Oh, man. Agents brought the mushrooms back to the States, began working on analyzing them so they could chemically replicate the hallucinogenic properties and not have to rely on growing them, which, you know, could be slow and tricky. Albert Hoffman, the same Swiss scientist who had discovered LSD, was the one who also identified the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, psilocybin. Dude, this guy is just the fucking godfather of hallucinogens. She have statues of him in San Francisco and places. Uh, she have some statues. They should have a statue of him at Burning Man, right? Uh, soon after discovering the exact compound, Dr. Isbell was shooting up inmates with psilocybin back in that Lexington prison and getting paid CIA, CIA money to do it. Uh, again, fascinating that MK Ultra researchers helped launch a counterculture revolution. I didn't know that they brought mushrooms over uh, before doing this research either, that we have uh, CIA to thank for both mushrooms <laughs> and acid. Um, and yeah, and the, and the, and how they got from like the CIA experiments to the, you know, the counterculture revolution is, you know, a lot of this early work was done at colleges, colleges like Harvard. And then eventually, you know, the LSD recipe begins to, to get, you know, replicated by some rogue chemists, you know, you know, some smarty pants hanging out these smarty pants schools and they start doing recre recreationally, you know, starts getting in the hands of some, you know, some professors looking to expand their minds and it just kind of, you know, goes from there. You know, Timothy Leary, the LSD guru himself, he was around MKUltra experiments when he was at Harvard. Harold Abramson, an early researcher recruited by MKUltra who worked at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, may have been the first man to disperse LSD recreationally, giving it to friends he had in the academic uh, world at little parties. Beatnik poet Allen Ginsberg, he was part of an early wave of volunteers to try LSD. Uh, Ken Kesey, uh, author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I maybe mispronounced his last name, it's K-E-S-E-Y, uh, was an early government user of LSD. Ultra agents were looking into anything that might lead to a breakthrough in mind control, interrogation techniques, or memory erasing. Uh, one doctor whose research MK uh, Ultra was very interested in was Dr. Donald Ewan Cameron, a Canadian psychiatrist working in Montreal in the 50s at a hospital called Allen Memorial, uh, who believed he could create what was called uh, differential amnesia. Basically, he could make people like, you know, forget their mental illness, but not forget the rest of their life uh, through essentially a shitload of shocking. So we're going to go back into shocking for a second. Uh, Project uh, Ultra agents love this. You know, if it worked, they could interrogate someone, you know, like we talked about earlier, and then make them forget they were interrogated. You know, this was 
one of the things are, you know, again, they're trying LSD to try and see if they can do this. You know, they just want to be able to control someone's mind or if they can't control someone's mind completely, have some kind of like truth serum to at least get them to give honest info. Or if they can't do that, maybe also, you know, be able to wipe their memories. Ideally, they want to accomplish all three. And they're, and they're trying all of these things, hoping that one of them leads to some or all of that. Well, this Dr. Cameron was not some quack. Uh, he was, but he was a quack in the sense that all, almost all, <laughs> not all, but almost all psychiatrists in the 1950s were quacks. They didn't know what they were doing. They were fucking messing around with people's noodles in horrific ways. But this, but this guy was very uh, uh, esteemed. He was the president of the American Psychiatric Association in 1952 and 1953, president of the Canadian Psychiatric uh, Association in 58, 59. So, you know, he, took, he, he kind of took a dive there. That's okay. That's just, why did I do that? Why did I take a random shot at Canada? I don't even, that was like, that was like a joke done out of habit. Like in my brain, it's like I've heard so many jokes disparaging Canada. I don't even feel that way. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retract. I'm not going to edit that out, but I'm going to retract that joke. Uh, he was president of the World Psychiatric Association from 1961 to 1966. He's the best of the best. He's the best around. No one's ever gone. And he thought that, uh, I don't know what song that is. And he thought that, uh, you know, maybe forcing patients into a routine of drug-induced sleep and then multiple daily powerful electroshocks that by doing that, it could reprogram their brains. Kind of like doing a hard reset on your phone, like reformatting uh, you know, a memory card, except, except you get to keep the files that you want intact. Now check out how horrific this method was. Patients would be started with 15 to 30 days of sleep therapy, <laughs> where they'd be given a daily sleep cocktail of 100 milligrams of Thorazine, 100 milligrams of Nemutol, 100 milligrams of Secanol, 150 milligrams of Veronol, and 10 milligrams of Phenergan. Then, then gets even better. Then they would be woken by the staff two or three times a day for powerful electroshock treatments. Around this time, psychiatric patients receiving electroshock therapy would, would generally be given a dose of about 110 volts, one dose that would last a fraction of a second. And, they'd be, and that would happen to them once a day or like once every other day. Well, Dr. Cameron cranked up to 150 volts. It's almost a, a, you know, like a 30-some percent increase 30%, you know, increased it by over 30% and, and gave patients an initial uh, one-second shock. So instead of a fraction of a second, he kicked up to one second, and that would induce convulsions, and then he would follow by five to nine additional one-second shocks in the middle of convulsions. So they're being shocked like, you know, a thousand times more. or the norm, um, Not a thousand times, ten times more. This is bad math, but way more. Way, 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 way more than being shocked at other places. Former staff members and patients recall hearing a lot of frequent screams in the hospital during this... Uh, during this type of treatment. Oh, yeah, I bet they did. Uh, some subjects ended up undergoing this daily treatment for 60 straight days. Two months of forced sleep only to be woken up to eat, go to the bathroom, or be fucking shocked to shit. And these, are, these aren't captured enemy spies being tortured to reveal secrets that could save hundreds of lives. These are patients. These are mentally ill patients. You know, they, they came there to feel better. Well, subject of the treatment uh, would end up dazed, losing control of bodily functions. Uh, they would be just seen kind of aimlessly wandering the halls of the facility. Initially, the subjects would lose uh, much of their memory, but they still kind of knew who they were and why they were there. Uh, eventually, after many more days of horrible torture, uh, they would forget uh, who they were. They would forget why they were there, but they would be anxious when asked those questions. And then eventually, they wouldn't know anything and wouldn't care why they didn't know anything. So their minds were just completely gone by the end. And Dr. Cameron considered this a success because they also didn't exhibit symptoms of schizophrenia. See, you're, you're cured. No more schizophrenia. You also have no more, no more personality or memories, but, you know, kind of a win. 
Nope. Uh, Dr. Cameron was also a big proponent of sensory deprivation. He was basically just like a medieval torturer disguised as a psychiatrist. Uh, he thought minds could be erased and rebuilt with enough of uh, sens uh, enough sensory deprivation, which again, alter agents were like, okay, we're, we're listening. We, we like the, the possibility of rebuilding a mind the way we'd like it rebuilt. Uh, you know, because they wanted to strip away somebody to nothing and then use the resulting blank slate to build a super agent. Someone who would be intensely loyal to the CIA. Someone, you know, cognitively, cognitively incapable of betraying them. Someone who had no family allegiances to be used against them if captured. Someone truly, you know, psychologically unafraid of torture or death. Kind of like a carbon-based robot really working for him. Well, uh, Dr. Cameron would place patients in a small box that let in no light or sound. They would only be removed briefly to use the bathroom and eat. You know, they wouldn't have uh, room to move at all. They'd be like in one one position. They wouldn't be stoke, uh, spoken to at, at any time. Uh, other doctors interested in sensory deprivation uh, felt that no patient should ever be left alone in the box for more than six days. But as we learned about Dr. Cameron be before, he doesn't give a fuck about protocol. It's like, what? No more than six days ever or it'll completely break somebody? Okay. Well, how about we just, uh, how about we kick it up for over a month? <laughs> how about we just go more than five times that? He left one woman whose symptoms were uh, analyzed by doctors years later revealed that she was just going through menopause, left her in that box for over a month to cure her of wildly swinging moods, and it didn't cure her. I'm sure, I'm guessing it made her much more insane, and now permanently instead of just hormonally. Uh, in addition to the box, Dr. Cameron also injected some patients with a non-lethal dose of uh, Carrere, a South American poison used by remote tribes uh, to poison arrows with. In, in non-lethal amounts, it would just paralyze you. You know, but you could still kind of be aware it was happening around you. So there you are, now physically unable to move in a dark place where you can't hear anything and left there for weeks at a time. Jesus Christ. And, you know, and CIA, uh, the, the you know, Project uh, Ultra is paying for this. You know, because, hey, yeah, it's a lot of torture, but again, and justifies the means. Maybe we'll figure out how to wipe somebody's brain clean and make a super agent. Uh, 1953, the CIA also works with a man named Dr. Lilly at the National Institute of, uh, Institutes of Health outside of Washington, D.C., Lily had come up with a method of, of pounding oh – man, sorry, animal lovers. This is going to be rough uh, – pounding up to 600 tiny sections of hypodermic tubing into the skulls of monkeys through which he could insert electrodes into different parts of the monkey's brain and electrically uh, stimulate each part of the brain specifically to determine which part of the brain is responsible for like pleasure, anger, anxiety, pain, fear, you know, uh, et cetera. You know, and again, I know if you're an animal lover, uh, this is especially painful to hear about. But he did do something nice for at least one of his subjects. He did do something nice for a monkey. With all this tube sticking out of this monkey's head. Uh, he, he figured out exactly what part of the monkey's brain was responsible for orgasm. And then he... <laughs> I'm not making this up. This is one of my weird flights. He then gave the monkey access to the switch that controlled stimulating that particular electrode. You know, so you see what I'm saying? This monkey's like, the monkey figured out that if he pulls this little lever, he has, he has an orgasm. And, uh, and when the monkey put that together, I guess this monkey uh, would give itself at least one orgasm. Uh, at least every <laughs> every three minutes for up to 16 hours a day. So on the conservative end, uh, the, this monkey was giving itself 320 orgasms a day. So on the one hand, 600 tubes pounded into your head by a mad scientist, not good. But on the other hand, giving yourself at least 320 orgasms a day, and because you're a monkey, not even feel guilty that you're, you know, just coming your life away, that's good. Well, Dr. Lilly, to his credit, he stopped working with the CIA shortly after he started. Just to, He was afraid that this research could lead to CIA agents sent on deadly missions with electrodes strategically implanted in their brains that could be remote controlled to ensure they completed their missions. So, you know, so good for him on that end. Okay, finally, uh, the end of Ultra happens in 1963. Project Ultra is, is ended. 
uh, after all the research you've already heard about and God knows what else. Most of the classified documents for Project Ultra uh, made it to the paper shredder. So we'll never know for sure what they did. We do know they also looked into like remote viewing, you know, uh, ESP. Uh, so they, they were they were trying to do things like, like control things across the world with their brains. You know, people in rooms fucking concentrating real hard, trying to like look into the Kremlin and stuff. Uh, they, they did stuff like they would meet with tribal witch doctors and try and get their secret. Like, again, remember, uh, just nothing was too strange. One ultra agent described their approach this way. He said there were some unbelievable schemes, but you also knew Einstein was considered crazy. You know, you couldn't be so biased that you couldn't leave uh, open the possibility that one crazy idea might work. So, uh, one of my favorite things they researched was it was investing 9,000 into figuring out how to instantly hypnotize someone, uh, kind of like uh, some, it sounds like some shit out of Star Trek, like some kind of Vulcan nerve pinch where you, what, what you would do is you would, you would surprise somebody sitting in a chair and all of a sudden you'd put your hands on their forehead and tell them to go to sleep. <laughs> That's how it was described in the book. And, and they, and they claim it worked on some people. God, that had to have been super awkward when it didn't work. Just do what the fuck are you doing? Get your hand on my head. Why, why are you telling me to go to sleep? What the hell is wrong with you? You're going to give me a heart attack sneaking me up on like that, Earl. Well, reading about their older experiments makes me understand the allegations of mafia ties more clearly, right? Like if they couldn't create some type of Manchurian candidate to do their bidding, keep all their secrets, I mean, the next best thing is to work with criminals used to doing others' bidding and used to keeping secrets, mafia hitmen. Speaking of which, I know we will get to the Iceman eventually. I promise. Not too much longer. Uh, and just because Ultra ended in 1963, that doesn't mean uh, it went away. It just became Project MK Search. One project would morph into another. And before we delve into a little bit more of what Search looked like, let's see the, the let's look into the idiots of the internet and see what they think of Ultra. Idiots of the internet. internet. All right, I I thought this episode would provide some fantastic idiot commentary and. Holy shit, was I right? Uh, the first video I looked at when I just uh, went on YouTube and I titled, you know, just search for MK Ultra, it, <laughs> it's titled Katy Perry, the MK Ultra Illuminati Puppet of the Elite, posted by Vigilant Citizen last month. It already has hundreds of thousands of views. It's a video trying to show that Katy Perry has been brainwashed by the MK Ultra project that is apparently still going on. They took footage from a recent therapy session of, store, of sorts that she did for Viceland. User Tina R. posts after watching the video, That helped me part at the end was creep. She wasn't joking. Looked like she was in a deep MK state. To which Casey MXX replies, Tina R., it was definitely a humiliation ritual. If you know about MK, you will know about why they do them. Same thing when Kanye humiliated Taylor Swift and then done a song saying, I made the bitch famous. He done exactly that. <laughs> because by taking part in that humiliation ritual, she became initiated as an Illuminati puppet like the rest of them. Majority of the celebs have taken part in that at some point or another in their careers. To which Tina R. Uh, reaffirms, Casey MXX, yep, you're right. <laughs> Definitely a humiliation ritual of some kind. SMH, <laughs> shaking my head. No, Tina R. and Casey MXX, I'm shaking my head. So let me get this straight. You clearly believe that Project Ultra is still around that they've mastered mind control and that they're using it to turn celebrities into mind control puppets. No, no, they haven't. And I'll tell you why. If they have mastered mind control, truly accomplished that, then they would just be mind controlling, you know, everyone in the media, you know, uh, high ranking government officials, big corporations into pushing some narrative that, you know, uh, uh, worked much better for them than dicking around with Katy Perry. There'd be no need to distract the public with celebrities because the poor would be mind controlled into being happy about being poor. Foreign leaders would be mind controlled in, into never bothering us. There would be no national debt. You know, you could mind control the IMF, world banks, foreign banks, you know, foreign leaders into absolving our debt. 
There would be no need for the world to be as turbulent as it is right now if a small group of people had the power just to totally control how the rest of us think. But no, but no, you, you, you think they're going to use that unbelievable godlike power to fuck with Katy Perry. Okay. Here's another video uh, called Undeniable Proof and Footage, Illuminati, MK Ultra, Mind Control, and Cloning Malfunctions Exposed. All right, first off, I want to get a, a feel for this. I want you to listen to a little bit of this, a little bit of this video. Listen to this horseshit. Truth Unveiled here, and today we're going to be going over cloning MKUltra and the mind control and the Illuminati that's behind it indeed. <laughs> now, I've covered cloning before in the past, and I've talked about cloning centers and the MKUltra program, but this time I'm actually going to show you footages of clone malfunctions and even the MKUltra program so you can see it right in front of you and see what really goes on in Hollywood indeed. Now, just, just this guy's voice, not to be a dick, but if you had to bet your life on, like, is this guy recording this audio from his his parents' house or from, like, a, like a weird, <laughs> like, like a, you know, uh, you know, like a, a picture, like a room with a lot of age inappropriate kind of posters on the walls. Like he's, you know, he's 35, but his room is decorated mostly in Pokemon posters kind of vibe. Or is he that? Is it more that way? Or is it more like he's got you know a couple kids? He's got a, he's got a house. He's he's recording this from his uh, you know his office at work where he has a solid job. You know, just basically like does this sound <laughs> like somebody who may have their shit together or somebody on the absolute fringes of society? So let's just I just want to point that out. Okay. okay. So now this is footage of a Katy Perry concert where she's acting like she's feeling off. And then he has the words on the screen, clone malfunction, as she seems to act, act apparently a little bit off. She's saying, I'm not feeling so well. He has that captioned. Then he says, wait for it. Gets quiet. Now he writes, spiraling out of control as she continues with her obviously staged choreography. And she does a pratfall on the stage. She gets carried off by security. The sad music, he says, he says, cue in the sad music. But dancers, clearly on cue, uh, come out. So that, 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 that's all he sees. He sees, it's obviously to me when you watch the video, it's obviously just part of the show. No one seems alarmed uh, in the crowd. No one seems alarmed in the band right next to her. They just keep playing. No weird looks towards her. This is obviously part of the show. Okay. Um, and then somehow, though, uh, Truth Unveiled, 777, this this person that posted this video, he, he uses this pop star performing on stage in a very normal pop star way as proof of cloning and proof of MK Ultra mind control typing. Even if the Katy Perry performance was staged and part of the show, this is once again one of the many, all caps, covert and subtle ways that the elite are literally putting the cloning MK Ultra mind control agenda right in front of our faces, exclamation points, several of them. Plus, the all caps whole world is a stage indeed. This is no different. Do you hear what this ass clown is saying? Even if the show is a normal show, still proof of cloning. And mind control. Uh, come on, you guys, wake up. Having normal-looking people act normally, that's, that's how they get you. 
That's, that's, how they, that's exactly how they get you. Making everything seem totally normal, having things work like they're supposed to, that's when the CIA is controlling our minds the most. That's brilliantly idiotic. You, you can't argue with someone who uses things not seeming nor- normal and things seeming normal, both, you know, as undeniable proof of something nonsensical. You can never out-debate just utter insans- insanity. Under the same video, user Daily Content chimes in with, I believe in MK Ultra, but not in cloning. To which user Mike Johnson comes back with, cloning is not a big deal. They admitted cloning in the 70s. This is 2017. They've been, they've been, they've been cloning for centuries. <laughs> I love cloning is no big deal. What the fuck? What are you talking about? Just clones, man. Shit. Clones have been around for hundreds of years, bro. They make them, you know? They just fucking, they make them in clone factories. Wake up, dude. You know, you gotta stay woke, bro. No big deal, man. I would love to see this guy, <laughs> like, I'd love to see this guy questioned by Anderson Cooper or somebody. So, you know, just, uh, so h- how do you think uh, people were being cloned hundreds of years ago when modern medicine hadn't been invented yet and world leaders and the wealthy were still dying of basic infections? <laughs> well, you know, you know, Illuminati, MK Ultra, man, they're mysterious motherfuckers, you know, bro. That's how they do their shit, you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Uh, that, that actually didn't answer any part of my question in even, even the most minuscule of ways. So I, I will ask it again. How were human beings being cloned hundreds of years ago when no single doctor had ever claimed to have successfully cloned a human in the history of ever, and the medical community has only recently begun to acknowledge it could actually happen in the near future? <laughs> it's clones, bro. It's no big deal. Do you, do you even know what a question is? Do you understand how a question works? Clones, bro. Well, user CrimsonLand1 seems even dumber than Mike Johnson, typing the follow- following idiot gold. Types, how can you not believe in cloning? <laughs> he actually types that many ha's. I might have missed a few, but I started to kind of choke out. They cloned a sheep like, what, 20 years ago? And you honestly can't believe they're not cloning humans? Get real, fool. Look at the TV 20 years ago, bro. <laughs> and look at them today. This is just one example. Then he ends with, don't be a dumbo. Yeah, don't be, don't be a dumbo, you guys. Dolly the Sheep was cloned back in 1996, you know, 21 years ago. He, that, he was right about that. But uh, shitface, uh, Katy Perry is 32 years old. She's born in 1984, which would mean, Crimson Land 1, that this upgrade in cloning technology would have had to take place 12 years before the sheep was cloned. Why? Because cloning doesn't mean replicating a fully grown person. That's something you probably saw in some shitty science fiction movie. You mistook for a documentary, you fucking idiot. My God, I, I'm sorry if this segment seems cruel sometimes, but I think it is important to have a weekly reminder of just, you know, just how, how necessary basic education is. Education is so important. Teach children proper deductive reasoning skills. Teach them critical thinking. Encourage them to read academic literature, study science, mathematics, in addition to history and the arts. And I promise they will not grow up to be Crimson Land 1. And the world's going to be a better place for all of us. You know, everyone who has even a little education knows that other than Dolly the Sheep, the only mammal that has ever been cloned is Bojangles. Bojangles was cloned by Project Ultra Agents in 1959 to create a race of super dogs. Fifty three-legged, one-eyed pit bulls were given LSD and dropped into Cuba to stabilize the existing government and turn back the Castro-led communists. Why were they given LSD? I don't know. I don't know why. That part doesn't make sense, but it happened and it backfired. And the scientists were unable to clone Bojangles, his patriotism. That's where they messed up. They, didn't, they weren't able to clone patriotism. And the clone Bojangles ended up being communists. 
and that made it possible for the CIA to never assassinate Castro. That's what, that's what got Castro in power, was the Bojangles' clones. And they still live in the jungles of Cuba to this day. Look it up on a website in my head. That's some history for you right there. Seriously, though, uh, enough of my idiotic thoughts and back to these idiots. Finally, just the other day, at the end of this very long thread of comments, so mind-numbingly uh, idiotic, so uncreatively idiotic, they're not even worth digging into in this segment, user the Mighty Red Panda eloquently takes a hard truth shit in the middle of their simpleton shindig, typing, You're all insane. You know that, right? You claim to be the ones with open minds and us the sheep. But all I've seen in the comments of these videos and the videos themselves are people following blind faiths, fights breaking out over both theorists and non-believers not being tolerant for others' opinions, and a whole lot of claims with a minuscule amount of evidence. Seriously, I consider myself to be a pretty progressive and open-minded guy, but I never believe anything without seeing proof, and I rarely uh, do I ever, or, and rarely do I ever see accurate proof to support these crackpot claims you all keep spewing. You're the true sheep here, following blindly a resistance led by an uneducated, cynical, and downright intolerant megalomaniac who has to deceive others to feel better about the fact that they never understood the way the world actually works. Well, zap! Take that truth unveiled, 777! If only you were intellectually capable of understanding how he just destroyed your entire life's focus, you'd realize that you're not uncovering any hidden truths, but are instead but one of the many idiots of the internet. All right, so MK Ultra. do I think it happened? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I know it did. I've read the, some of the source documents, documents the CIA themselves declassified. At first, the idea of the CIA slipping LSD into random people's drinks or injecting it into prisoners sounded like true conspiracy nut gibberish to me. It sounded like something that Truth Unveiled 777 would be blabbing about or some dude on the street wearing an aluminum foil hat would be screaming at the sky about. But now... I'm a believer, 100%. And who knows how far they really took experiments? We'll never know. Basic logic tells me that the most damning documents always get destroyed. I mean, come on. You know, th this is an agency that is giving unsuspecting people large doses of LSD. This is an agency created to, to covertly overthrow, uh, you know, governments. They're, they're, they're trained to cross ethical lines. So, so do you think that people trained to cross ethical lines on a regular basis are also going to be the kind of people who just keep every document that could possibly incriminate them? There's no way. They're burning that shit. That's, that stuff's going through the shredder. Not only do I believe all this happened, I, I understand why, man. It was a different cultural climate during the Cold War. You know, if you truly believe that Soviets are one step away from mastering mind control and taking down America with it, of course you're going to do anything you can to try and stop that. Of course you're going to try and discover things like mind control first. You know, and as I said before, the experiments, you know, uh, uh, didn't stop when Ultra did. In June of 1964, MK Search was launched. MK Search shifted the focus from mind control to projects that addressed stresses society wide, could topple nations through a different sort of espionage, kind of more practical stuff, and frankly, a little bit more genius, like stuff like developing a bacteria that corrupts oil so that the contaminated oil uh, fouls any engine it encounters. They tried actually using that on Cuba in the late 1960s and 1970s. I mean, that's, that's genius, man. Taint their oil, foul every automobile, boat, plane. Uh, in addition to destroying uh, oil-based production and industrial facilities, man, you do that, you collapse the entire economy of a nation, making their government, you know, a lot easier to overthrow. Uh, 1966, the CIA funded a former agent, uh, J.C. King's new company, the Amazon Drug Company, and King scoured the Amazon jungle for years, looking for some previously unknown plant with properties that maybe could finally make mind control or selective amnesia possible, maybe finally be synthesized in some magical truth serum. And I'm sure they're still researching stuff today on some level. You know, I'm sure they're doing stuff we don't know about. That's, that's literally their job, to do shit we don't know about. 
That's why some projects are classified. We don't get to know about them, you know? And I'm sure a lot of them are necessary on some level or at least worth looking into. Who knows? And they may have some, you know, truly mind-blowing technology or new drug that would just scare the shit out of us if we truly realize it exists. They may have aliens at Area 51, for all I know. Uh, who knows? I don't think they have Roswell aliens after sucking that topic some time ago. And, and I don't think that, you know, Katy Perry is a clone. But I do think there's probably some shit out there that's pretty crazy. And, and, and one last thought before we uh, hit the wrap-up on this. I really, really, really hope that no one ever accomplishes their goals. I hope that no one ever discovers some magical mind-controlling elixir you know, or technique to control minds. Because if they do... God help us all. Well, what kind of world is that going to look like if someone uh, gets a hold of that godlike power? All right, time for some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, CIA agents working on Project MK Ultra in the early 50s would spike each other's drinks with LSD at work. And you thought things got weird at your job. Number two, the CIA is responsible for introducing magic mushrooms to America in the 1950s. I've had them a few times, and honestly, they're a lot of fun. Thanks, CIA. Number three, the only thing better than Aunt Jemima pancake batter, which is delicious, by the way, is exploding Aunt Jemima pancake batter. Holy shit, can I please have some of that? Maybe I'll have pancakes tomorrow morning. Maybe I'll blow up my neighbor's shed. I got both possibilities sitting right there in a nice little box. Number four, Project MK Ultra was about a lot of things, but mostly it was about LSD. So much LSD. Like dosing prisoners with LSD daily for over two months, kind of LSD. Which even uh, uh, after having taken LSD only once in my life, I can confidently say is way too much. Number five, new info. Ted Gazinski, a.k.a. the Unabomber, a.k.a. future time suck subject, a.k.a. the man who would mail or deliver 16 package bombs to scientists, academics, and others over 17 years, killing three people and injuring 23, attended Harvard as a 16-year-old student in 1958 and was an early participant in an MK Ultra experiment. He was involved in an interrogation study designed to weed out potential agents for being too psychologically weak to withstand interrogation from the enemy if captured. The study was ran by Dr. Henry Murray, who had each of his 22 subjects write an essay detailing their dreams and aspirations. The students were then taken into a room where electrodes were attached to them to monitor their vitals as they were subjected to extremely personal, stressful, and brutal critiques about the essays they had just written. Basically, their dreams were then just shit on horrifically. Following the psychological attacks, the participants were forced to watch videos of themselves being psychologically attacked multiple, multiple times. Kaczynski claimed to have had the worst phys uh, physiological reaction to any of those being interrogated. Again, he was only 16. Uh, these experiments, paired with his lack of social skills and memories of being bullied as a child, may have caused Kaczynski to suffer horrible nightmares that eventually drove him into seclusion in, outside of Lincoln, Montana. MK Ultra may not, you know, they, they didn't clone Katy Perry, but they might have created the Unabomber. Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right, a little preview of next week's show now. That was, uh, that was, that was this week's suck, Time Sucker. No, the bonus episode in the bank. I'll have to figure out what, uh, what the next three options are going to be for the 900 Suck episode and let y'all vote on Instagram to pick your favorites. Uh, this Monday on Time Suck, the KKK. I really don't know much about the Ku Klux Klan, but after the you know, recent events in Charlottesville, I, I just feel like it's time to suck on these shitheads. I suspect the entire episode is going to feel like one big old idiot to the internet segment, and I like it. How many people in the U.S. are still racist enough in 2017 to put on white hoods and march and protest against race relations, you know? What do the, these people actually believe in? What are they actually trying to accomplish? Have any of them ever graduated high school? You know, <laughs> their hate-filled history thoroughly explained, examined, and probably, you know, seriously mocked, let's be honest, uh, on Monday. 
So that's what's ahead. And now uh, let's take a, t- a second to see what's uh, what's been covered. Let's look back with some Time Sucker updates. Okay, so if you're new to the suck, this is where listeners, you know, update the time suck community with changes to previous stories, corrections to mistakes I've made, or just write in and share how much the suck may mean to them. Uh, quick pronunciation update from a few suckers. Britain's uh, reading festival, as I said, where Nirvana headlined, is pronounced a reading festival. Reading, not reading, like it's spelled. Uh, local names they don't sound like the 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 fucking words they're clearly spelled like. Uh, uh, they've, they've defeated me yet again. Well, thanks to a British listener, Graham at G H A M O X fourteen on Twitter, for giving me the local scoop. Let me know it's the Reading Festival. Also, a Slenderman trial update from a couple episodes back. Cole Warren, White Mullins, few few other time suckers wrote in to let me know that uh, Anissa Weir, fifteen, you know, one of the two girls who stabbed their friend in Wisconsin to appease the online monster known as Slenderman when all three girls were twelve, has just pled guilty to attempted second degree homicide as a party to a crime with use of a deadly weapon to avoid a charge of attempted. First-degree intentional homicide. Anissa can be sentenced to up to 10 years in prison for this charge or be out by 2020 if a jury determines that she's incapable of being guilty of this charge by reason of mental disease or defect. Now, I'm really curious as to what the jury decides in this case because, uh, you know, if she did, in fact, truly, truly believe that she had to kill someone to appease Slenderman and to keep Slenderman from killing her family, she claimed, you know, then she probably would be much better served in a mental health facility for a couple of years in a prison for 10 uh, or more than 10. But, you know, but what I what I brought up still isn't being discussed by the mainstream media, what I brought up in the initial episode, and that's that she didn't just want to stab uh, some girl to appease Slenderman to save her family. She wanted to stab a girl so she could join Slenderman and be an active part of his murderous crew. So even if there's like some mental illness there, there's also this weird evil intent along with it. So, you know, if that part's true, shouldn't she receive maybe some additional years of treatment for that? You know, I guess what I'm saying is basically like, should there be different mental health sentences depending on what type like how your your mental illness kind of manifests, you know, like, for example, if you kill somebody because you truly believe they're trying to kill you and your family, shouldn't maybe you receive a lighter type of, you know, mental health confinement sentence than if you kill someone because, you know, the devil told you to and, and also told you that once you killed him, you got to join his team and start raping and killing everybody else. And you thought this sounded fucking great because you've been waiting for that for years and you just couldn't believe your good fortune on being offered a, a wonderful opportunity to join your favorite team. One example is just sad mental illness. The other example seems to be mental illness combined with, you know, some some evil horrificness. I mean, I don't know. I guess mental illness is mental illness, you know, but, you know, in both cases. But maybe you can't chop it up that way. But something still really bothers me about Anissa and Morgan wanting to stab their friend Peyton so they could become Slenderman's proxies, you know. And when you watch their prison confessions, Anissa in particular seemed very excited about the chance to be a proxy, which is, you know, basically to be this uh, monster's assistant who gets to also kill kids. So, I don't know. That just creeps me out. Uh, and then another update, uh, uh, depression admission update. This is uh, came in from uh, from Ryan Johnson, Time Sucker, wrote in with an update about uh, Monday's Kurt Cobain episode. Just says, hello, Sucklord. I'd like to make a comment regarding the uh, the option uh, you shared, or the opinion, excuse me, you shared on the Kurt Cobain podcast about Ritalin. You mentioned in the podcast that you didn't believe Ritalin could lead to future drug abuse, but I would like to kindly disagree. I feel that my experience taking Adderall was very similar to Kurt's. And that when you are taking a drug as strong as Adderall or Ritalin daily for a long period of time, your body as well as your mind starts to crave the euphoria that it gives you. It may help many people, but for me, uh, I feel that it really changed my brain chemistry to the point where three years off of it, I'm still struggling with alcohol dependence. Say what you want about clinical trials proving this wrong, but you can't deny the drug spikes dopamine levels in your brain. And to do that daily, you become dependent on some type of high. I hope this made a little bit of sense. It did. And I really wanted to share my point of view with you so you can better understand where Kurt and many people may be going, what they may, what they may be going through. Uh, 
Also love the podcast. Keep on sucking. Yes, yes, you keep on sucking. Hail Nimrod, Brian. Thanks for sharing that story. Uh, and sorry to hear about your struggles, man. Personal firsthand experience is hard to ignore. And, you know, and unlike you, I, I don't have any with Ritalin or Adderall. Never took it. Uh, and just like you, though, you know, Kurt did feel uh, that, you know, having that feeling of euphoria as a kid being associated with a pill made him more likely to take drugs later on. And you know what? That might be totally true. Uh, it does make it sense to me on a gut level uh, that that could be very real. Uh, no matter what the cause, drug addiction and depression are real and prevalent things. And if one or both ever lead anyone listening to this to some horrible thoughts, call that number I mentioned last week, 1-800-273-8255. That's the suicide prevention hotline, 1-800-273-8255. And your message is a good one, Ryan, to remember that certain childhood experiences do predispose some people to have a harder time with addiction later in life. And because of that, it's good to approach addiction with more empathy, empathy excuse me, and less judgment. You know, I wonder how Kurt could have, uh, you know, taken his own life with a little baby at home with so many people who loved his art so much, but I also, you know, have never been addicted to heroin. I don't know how that feels. I, I didn't have his childhood. I didn't have his genetic makeup, which included numerous suicides in his family. So maybe instead of feeling anger towards him for doing that, you know, uh, I should feel sorry for him that he wasn't able to get the help that he clearly needed. That being said, if anyone listening commits suicide for any reason, you are eternally banished from Nimrod's Alpha and Omega ball sack. And as I said last week, you know, you're, you're, or Monday, uh, you're doomed to be stuck in Nimrod's tight, hairy, stinky butthole forever. You know, rules, rules. And speaking of rules, this might be the fourth update today. Uh, when I said I, I know I'd only stick to three, but fuck it. A lot of people wrote in after hearing the Kurt Cobain episode, sharing their own battles with depression and suicidal thoughts. A time sucker named Nick was one of those fine folks, and he wrote in saying, I want to let you know that I really appreciate you talking about your past depression problems and suicidal thoughts. I know it's never easy to talk about and be that personal with strangers. Uh, that's, that's why I love your comedy, that's why I love your comedy, uh, and, or sorry, that's why I loved your comedy for years and love your podcast. I contemplated suicide 10 years ago and had the memory of having the rope around my neck around two o'clock in the morning. And by the grace of Nimrod, my mother knocked on the door because she woke up with a bad feeling. I unlocked the door and said everything was okay. And to this day, she has no idea what she stopped, that she stopped me because I freaked out. It seems like a haze because I honestly don't believe how I could think that way now. I look at my daughter and I don't have those hopeless feelings, but I keep that feeling to help people as a firefighter slash EMT and appreciate that you use your gift of comedy to also help people. I proudly wear my Time Suck t-shirt everywhere. Honestly, from my heart, thank you for doing what you do. Keep on sucking. Well, damn it. You got me. Got me right, right, in, the, right in the heart box there, there Nick. Uh, wow, man. Uh, this and other emails, you know, uh, I like that email. Really, really touched me, man. It really touched me this past week. It's nice to know that we can all help each other feel a little better by sharing how, you know, sometimes we feel like shit. Once again, you time suckers prove that you're the cream of the fucking crop. I love you people. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. All right, have a good weekend, everybody, and I'll be talking uh, into your mind again on Monday. Until then, stay curious. Don't drink anything handed to you by someone who you even think may look like someone who could even play a CIA agent on TV. Don't go get a lobotomy just because it's still technically legal. Think, Think twice. Before shocking the shit out of your brain, trust no one except me. Hail Nimrod, praise Bojangles, peace be with Michael motherfucking McDonald, and keep on sucking. Oh, shit.